Abner Mares is a world champion boxer, Olympian, sports commentator, and more importantly, dad to two little girls, beloved by abuelas and hardcore fans alike. Abner is a pro at entertaining the world, both in and out of the ring, and he has a podcast on Blue Wire. On the hook with Abner Mares, you'll hear from Abner his family, fellow athletes, and other people who made him the boxer and the man that he is. You'll hear about topics like the state of boxing and just Abner being a husband and a girl dad, as well as as well as more. Um, so listen to On the Hook with Abner Mares wherever you get your podcasts. Episodes in English are out on Tuesdays and episodes in Spanish are out on Wednesdays. What up, what up, everybody? This is Double G for the Fight Game podcast. Sunday night, Monday morning, depending on when you're listening to this. Bring it on, good buddy, Mike Gilbert from the Combat Republic. What's up, man? Hey, what's going on, brother? So we just got finished watching the Bloodsport show, which was this gigantic um, in independent wrestling weekend called The Collective, put on by Game Changer. How much of that stuff did, did you get to watch, or did you only get to watch Bloodsport? Uh, you know, I, I checked out some of the For the Culture show, and I have a couple of other ones queued up, but dude, I am so behind on my <laughs> wrestling right now. There is no way I'll ever be able to catch up, so I have a couple in the can ready to go uh, to check out, but um, this was the first one of the weekend that I got to see from start to finish. Yeah, I, this was really the only one that I was interested in. And not to say that, you know, there wasn't other good stuff because all the people in our group, you know, there was lots of good stuff said about some of these shows. I'm just, you know, I, I've mentioned this before in that group and probably on this show is I'm just not super tied into that indie scene as I could be. And um, I didn't even really know about The Collective until like maybe it was like on... Friday afternoon when someone had said, oh, you know, I sort of took the day off to kind of kick it and watch all these shows. I was like, oh, I didn't know this was a crazy weekend. We had friends who were there. Uh, Nick McMood and, and Wade Hagen were both there. Uh, they were they were there live at the shows. So, that I mean, it sounds like it was a blast. It was probably as close to, you know, a WrestleMania weekend experience as we'll get until, I don't know, I guess I'm, I'm assuming they're going to do something similar in Tampa as as socially distanced out as they can get uh, um yeah. but no go ahead no uh yeah it seemed like it was a heck of a weekend this was kind of a make good show from a wrestlemania weekend earlier this year they they got taken away from everybody so I, i'm glad that they did it i i too i'm in the same boat i'm not big into the indie scene i i do get a chance to look and uh watch and review some shows for fight tv when they hook me up with um contests to do for my twitter and for my website and stuff so i have been getting into it mm -hmm. more this year but it's not something that i'm that i really really know a whole lot about and i've been learning a lot this year all right, so I'm going to quickly run down the matches. Just so I'll give the results and, and the finishes, and then we'll talk about some of the stuff that you really liked and, and that I liked. Uh, so first match, uh, open the show, Simon Grimm, former WWE guy, against um, Matt Makowski. Simon Grimm has been on a few of these, I believe. I know he was at the Bloodsport show that I saw live at WrestleMania 35 weekend. Not, I mean, 
he's 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 cool as as a pro wrestler. I'm not really sure about him in this format, but Matt Mikowski, I think he's got a striking background to him. Grim won with um, I think it was a, like a snap German, and Mikowski uh, got was knocked out, and the referee stopped it. We had a women's tournament, Killer Kelly against Allison K. Uh, Allison K won this match with some sort of like triangle le- leg choke. Uh, this was more of like a, 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 I would say, Killer Kelly played the baby face who was just taking a beating and, and not really good at this style. And Allison K was so much better, but she kept fighting back and crowd was very much with Killer Kelly. Uh, but this was uh, all Allison K for the most part offensively. Then Layla Hirsch and Lindsay Snow, definitely more of the style that you think of when you hear about Bloodsport. Lindsay Snow won fairly quickly with a heel hook. And so that made it Lindsay Snow and Allison K in the finals. We had Calvin Tankman versus Alexander James. Calvin Tankman was like, one of the early UFC fighters who really did not know what the hell he was doing, but he was big, so he could just like lay on top of people and like tire people out in that way. And he won with a right hand, uh, knocked out Alexander James. The, the 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 finishes were a little bit interesting because there were some moments where, like in the Killer Kelly match, uh, she got kicked and then she was about to flare flop, and I think she even went down to a knee. And I'm like. Okay, that's a knockout. Like Calvin K could have just like, just like you know, throw another punch and knocked her out even worse. But they didn't call that one. But then in the uh, in the Mikowski match, Grim hit him with the German, but he was kind of loopy, but didn't really look to be knocked out. That was called knockout. And similar here with Alexander uh, Alexander James, he just kind of fell backwards, and the referee just you know, it's not. It wasn't like an MMA knockout where you can de- where you're like some of the <laughs> some of the knockouts in the UFC show where you're like, right. okay, that dude is out. <laughs> you know that it wasn't like that here. So I was a little. I, I would have liked that to be a little better, but still. Um, Still, still some good stuff. Eric Hammer and Grizzly Cal Jack. We had Cal Jack on on the show uh, this weekend, and this was a, a a really cool match. Cal, obviously, amateur wrestler. Eric Hammer, catch catch can guy, and they had a fun battle. And he won with a double. He he uh, Hammer beat Cal with a double wrist lock. And then we had Filthy Tom coming out to the New Kids on the Block versus Homicide. And Homicide tried to turn this into a fight rather than a, a, not not a, not an MMA fight, but sort of like a pro wrestling street fight. And Filthy Tom like kind of got sucked into it, so they had a little bit of a, a of a pro wrestling match. And then um, Filthy finally sort of figured it out and kind of went back to his MMA roots and, and won the match. Though he was, I mean, he was pretty much pro wrestler the whole match. Uh, and he won with uh, like a single leg crab kind of uh, kind of maneuver. Uh, Josh Alexander versus Davy Boy Smith Jr. This was about the closest thing you could get to a squash. Davy Boy Smith won with the Liger bomb, the uh, the the sit out power bomb, uh, and referee called it as uh, as a knockout. So Davy Boy Smith quickly won. Then in the women's final, Allison K. Uh, against Lindsay Snow. Lindsay Snow tapped her out with a uh, heel hook. This was very short. It was more of a like a jujitsu match than it was a, a wrestling match. So it was a very sports oriented. So it was pretty cool, but also fairly short. And that set up uh, Chris Dickinson and John Moxley in the main event. 
Moxley, well, we'll talk about this in a second, but I was kind of wondering, because I don't know what kind of uh, what kind of background John has as far as training, though, you know, he said in the past that he's trained at Extreme Couture. And I know Dave in one of Dave Meltzer's, I think maybe, maybe it was in The Observer, he said that John was training pretty hard with uh, with some of the uh, MMA guys this weekend or last weekend. And he didn't really do a ton. Like he mostly used his, his body weight and he would like kind of grab a for or grab a wrist and didn't really do too many like any, you know, any, ju- any real jujitsu. Uh, Dickinson was, uh, you know, he, he, he's, a, he's a pretty fiery dude. He's a pretty strong dude. And he was kind of doing more so of the submissions and, and just kind of the groundwork. And uh, the one thing is Moxie kept shoving him outside the ring, sort of like a, I, I, I kind of saw it as like a heel move to kind of get out of stuff that, that he couldn't get out of otherwise, but the crowd obviously didn't take it. They were both gigantic baby faces. And then uh, Dickinson had a knee bar on Mox. Uh, Mox rolled them both out to break the hold because there's no, you know, there's no rope, so there's no break. So the one way to get out of that knee bar was to roll outside the ring and fall to the floor. And then they started trading slaps and forearms. Dickinson hit a back suplex on Mox. And then he nearly put him out with a kick, tried to set up the cross arm breaker. And then Mox, I don't know what it was. It was either a, a double underhook suplex or it was like a version of their dirty deeds that didn't exactly hit in, in the way that he wanted. And then he won with the bulldog choke that we see very often on AEW lately. Okay, so those are the results. Uh, I would say it was a, it was a pretty fun show, depending on if you like this style. But now I want to get Mike's thoughts on uh, on some of his favorite stuff on the show on the show. So, what did you think? I'm going to give you two questions. What did you think was a the best match, and what did you think was b the most fun match? And they could entirely be the same thing. Yeah, that, that's actually a really good question because before you a- asked the second question, <laughs> my my answer was going to be Filthy Tom and Homicide, um, but I'm going to move that to the fun category. I thought that was the funnest match. That was the one that got me off my seat the most. It was really cool to see Homicide back in there and kind of doing a style that you normally wouldn't think that he would be doing. Um, so I really, it really, really enjoyed the contrast of styles between uh, Homicide and Filthy Tom, and I I popped huge whenever I thought he was going to go for the cop killer uh, yeah. <laughs> his uh, his finishing maneuver and um and obviously he ended up not getting it and then tom won so i i thought that was cool i thought that was a really fun match i think the best match for me was uh moxley and uh and dickinson i i thought they worked well together man dickinson's got a lot of fire um and i i've noticed that in some of the matches that i've seen from him uh i saw him against tankman uh i want to say like a month ago at one of the mm-hmm. gcw shows that i covered but earlier this year uh gcw went to japan and i covered one of those shows and he took on uh, daisuke sikamoto okay. and and those dudes just just hauled off and An- just, another beast another beast just like oh, just this big massive chest he's like five foot eight built like a fire hydrant and those guys just went crazy and went uh it was just monster hitting each other back and forth. And um, so he, he's got a lot of fire. And I really thought he worked well with Moxley. And I, I thought it was very interesting that Moxley was really trying to play heel in this matchup because this is a Dickinson crowd, at least so he thought. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it was it was clear that there was nothing that he could do to get them to turn away. Uh, <laughs> Moxley has, I said on Twitter, Moxley has next level charisma. Uh, and it just goes to show you that there are levels to this profession. And Moxley is at that high 
higher level than everybody on the show right now. Um, but I, I really thought that they, they worked well together. I thought the deadlift German suplex was one of the best high spots of the entire night. In a night that didn't have many high spots, and I, I thought that was also a plus. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I thought that was the best match of the show. So, interestingly enough, I was kind of wondering about the Homicide and Filthy Tom uh, match, and um, Promise Thomas sent me a text, and he was like, you know, Homicide is and Tom's going to be great because Homicide is so smooth, and he's just such a great worker that he, he just thought it was going to be great. And, I, and I'm watching it, and I'm going like, damn, Tom's right. The, mm-hmm. whole, the whole thing was really good. I mean, the, this style, what's interesting about this style is, you know, when I, when I went to the that Bloodsport show at WrestleMania 35, I didn't really know what to expect. Like, I knew the kind of workers that were there, and I knew the kind of guys and, and what their styles were. And it was so interesting to see, you know, how, how they would take that into the the ring with no ropes and and this and and you know there like you said no no real high spots there's no flying there's no running around it's just like sort of grappling and 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 close quarters and everything and i think that show had more folks that i would say did more of this kind of style instinctively and just sort of naturally you had people on this show tonight who I was almost like they weren't really comfortable doing it. And so they used that in their character or in their, in what they were going to do. And, you know, Lenny Leonard was there to explain it all. I thought he did a pretty darn good job explaining that. Yeah. And that was going to be one of the things that I wanted to highlight was just how good a job that he did. Um, he, he didn't shy away from the fact that Calvin Tankman has no grappling background or any MMA experience. And whenever they were wrestling, you could tell like that guy's never really been in a fight before, but he's just a big, tough bastard and, and he can hang in there. And if he hits you, you're going to go down. And I, I thought that played really well. So I think I would agree with you about most fun match. I, I had a blast with <laughs> with that. Just, you know, Filthy Tom is so entertaining and, mm-hmm. and uh, Homicide was great. I think my favorite match was the Hammer and Cal Jack match only because that is more of the style that I enjoy right. when it comes to this stuff. Like, uh, you know, I, I was mentioning on, on the last show that I did with with uh, John, or maybe it wasn't the last one, but the one before. But John did a tournament. Uh, I think it was called Embrace the Grind or something like that, and it was very similar to what Bloodsport is. They had ropes, but they had to, you know. I think I think they were even doing rounds, and and it was just more um, more grappling and more like really chain wrestling and stuff and it, there wasn't any like get to the hot top rope and do that stuff so when, when i saw john's tournament and then when i saw Bloodsport, it was like okay those are similar and some of the stuff they did like in the killer kelly match i was like okay like you're doing a little bit of your your pro wrestling pro wrestling versus your blood sport pro wrestling and I, I'm, I'm not you know i'm not going to take anything away from her because i from what it looked like you know she she was this was probably um a newer style for her. And then at the end, she she was really good, so she got over in the crowd. That crowd was going to love her anyways. I meant she got over with me, who I don't really know her that well. So I, I like that aspect of it, but the stuff that I really, really like is that wrestling and the jiu-jitsu and mm-hmm. the transitions into these submissions and the really smart stuff where you can kind of see it coming, but it's so quick and it's so intuitive and it just looks so smooth and it looks like the even the, it looks like they're actually 
in a sport versus in a worked match, which is what it is. It's a worked match. So that I think that was my favorite just because I was like, okay, this is what I came to see. And we didn't get a ton of it, but that was sort of good enough for me where I was like, okay, that's that's what I wanted. And and so that quenched my thirst to to that. So that's probably my favorite match. I, I thought Mox and, and Dickinson was entertaining as hell too. Like, like you said, Moxley's charisma is pretty next level and it's funny because he does less stuff with his current john moxley aew champion new japan u.s champion wrestler then he did in wwe like in wwe he had to dial it up right they always tell you dial it up dial it up and he's so much more subdued with this character now but he is, but but it works way better than the WWE character. It's kind of crazy. Yeah, he's he's got this natural charisma about him. The moment he comes out of the curtain, you could just tell like this guy is a star, and he's not doing much. He just he just has this aura about him that's a star. All right, so um, has, you mentioned at the top that you haven't been able to watch a lot of stuff. I'm assuming that includes the G1. Yes, yes. I, I am way, way, way behind. Um, although I did see Ibushi versus uh, Suzuki. Uh, I saw that. Uh, from, I, it must have been from a few days ago. I watched it last night, though. Yeah, I, I'm a little bit behind, too. I am through... Um, so I haven't watched Saturday's show. Or uh, Sorry, I haven't watched Sunday's show yet. I have watched half of Saturday's show, so I'm coming close but from what I've seen from Saturday was awesome. So that, that the so basically the reason I asked you is because on this show, we're going to do two different other segments outside of you and me kind of doing the open here. I'm going to bring on John and we're going to talk WCW Saturday night from uh, October, I think it's October 10th, 1992. And then Justin and Carlos are going to come on and they have two shows to talk about. So that show is a little bit longer than normal. And I'm just going to tack that to the end so that they can they can go pretty much without interruption and just do their thing. Because we're coming close to the end here. We I think we have, uh, what, like three or four more shows left. And uh, and then we get the finals. So it'll, it'll be a lot of fun. But uh, yeah, so I want to thank Mike for jumping on. I know it was kind of just really quick, but... I wanted someone who was, who was watching this show to, to quickly talk about it. Is there anything um, that you want to mention about your website, about your Twitter, any contests that you got going on? Uh, so I, I do want to say that uh, my Bloodsport contest broke the record for any GCW show that I've ever done. Uh, oh, nice. Oh, it, it absolutely did. And I've done many GCW shows. And uh, that it, it was number two behind Slammiversary from earlier this year. So... Um, you know, everybody stay tuned. I, I should have another contest out here pretty soon. I, um, I'm constantly in contact with the fight guys, but you know, even, even if I don't, man, I'm still going to be covering shows and, and watching all the big ones and, uh, commenting on them. I try to get up as many articles as I can. Um, I also am part of the, um, the impact wrestling press pass. Now, uh, you can see me there, uh, every week. I, <laughs> I, uh, I'm usually at work in my office and I'm in my uniform, uh, <laughs> asking, uh, asking dumb questions. <laughs> 
um, that, uh, that they typically answer and they give a really good answer. This past week, I uh, was able to ask a question to uh, Chris Saban um, on there. So that's been really fun. That's really cool for my website and for my audience. And uh, I, on the 22nd, I'm going to be doing a Bound for Glory roundtable with um, with a bunch of different like um, smaller podcasts from all over the world. I know there's a Canadian guy. There's um, it's based out of the UK. We're all trying to figure out the, the right time. So whenever I do that, I will uh, shoot that out to everybody so everybody can check it out and, uh, and get geared up for what is, uh, you know, the next big show from my website, Bound for Glory on the 24th. Do you have any thoughts on the main event? Uh, you know, I, I think that, uh, they, they gotta go Rich Swan uh, over Eric Young and that, um, and it was honestly not a match that I was looking forward to. And then, uh, and then you guys, did, you and Dave, did your interview with Rich Swan, and he's such a likable guy. And um, they have done a really good job of building it up. And Rich has gotten way better on his promos. And Eric Young, who I thought was kind of dead in the water in his career, he came back with a vengeance, and he's been fantastic as a heel since he's returned to Impact. So um, I, I think they're going to have a really good match. I see Rich Swan winning just because you know you, you can't have him go through all. Of the uh, the trials and tribulations and the adversity over this whole year, uh, you know, being out for ten months uh, without uh, giving him a happy ending. So I'm I'm looking forward to that. All right, thanks for coming on and uh, check Mike uh, on the uh, the the Combat Republic Twitter. Remind remind everybody what the what the uh, URL is again. It's uh, well, my Twitter is at Combat Republic and uh, my website is thecombatrepublic.com. Indeed.com is the number one job site in the world. You only pay for what you need. You can pause your account at any time, and there are no long-term contracts. With 73% of online job seekers visiting Indeed each month, Indeed is going to get you the important hire you need, just like they have for over 3 million businesses. So right now, Indeed is offering our listeners a free $75 credit to boost your job post, which means more quality candidates will see it fast. Try Indeed out with a free $75 credit at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. And this is their best offer available anywhere. Right now, Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Offer is valid through the end of the year. So right through December 31st. All right. Going to send it to uh, to the segment John and I recorded earlier on WCW Saturday night. It's WCW Saturday night time for the October 10th, 1992 show. We are getting really close to spin the wheel, make the deal. So close that we saw Jake the Snake Roberts like three or four times on this show alone. And also uh, always uh, alongside talking about this. John, what's going on, man? Going good, man. As I'm looking forward to talking about this show. A lot of this, one is, uh, this is a fun I guess not two hours, but it was, uh, yeah, it was a two-hour show, right? I mean, yeah, with commercials, hours. but yeah, it was it was it was fun uh, reliving some of these uh, some of these good memories. So, what about Sting versus Orion? Old Happy Feet Orion? Yeah, well, who is that guy? I don't even I don't, re- I don't remember him. Don't know him either. I think this might be his last appearance. Um, <laughs> like he would not stay down like he was popping back up stay he wanted to do something he's like right there like getting like quickly moving his back up it's like no dude let's steam grab you and get you you're just a job guy yeah um he did take a nice hip toss out the corner or Mm -hmm. the corner so respect respect um but like (laughs) 
Sting. I, was someone ribbon Sting when they put him with this guy? Like, hey, let's, I don't know. He's like, let's get Sting this guy. Orion. You'll have fun with him. And Sting was being professional, but God, man, like that Stinger splash in the corner. Like, I don't know why Orion was slouched the way he was in the corner like that. Like, he, the way he, that was like a little, probably a little more brutal than if he was just a little more upright in the corner and, mm-hmm. and took the, you know, took the force from Sting's Stinger splash. I don't know. It was, uh, it was uh, pretty pretty bad, and poor poor Sting had to deal with this guy. But uh, it was it was entertaining for just being because the guy was so goofy. I mean, Sting still comes off as just a gigantic star on these shows. Oh yeah, man! I just love his energy and the, he just the way he communicates with the crowd, his body language. Just just when he comes, just the way he comes out alone. Like it's I don't know how he does it, but it, Hogan had this quality about him too. Like mm-hmm. like when he comes out. Like he's literally high five in the whole crowd, right? That's why mm-hmm. I feel Sting does with his body language, and people love him. And he's one of my favorites growing up as a kid. So, um, and when I when I hear that music hit, I just just get thrown back right back into a kid again and watching the show. I, I thought the order of some of this stuff was weird mm-hmm. because we saw multiple pe- people do several segments on the show. And I couldn't really figure out like what the order was or why this segment went here. So here was another one, which was Bill Watts, Rick Rude, and Medusa did a segment together. And in this segment, they were talking about Rude continually saying, you know, in Japan, I got screwed and and it was unfair. And I, it was me against... Um, you know, uh, uh, um, Tori, the referee. Yeah, I guess the referee. So it, now, Bill, uh, you know, he he agrees that they're going to have a ref of his choosing to kind of counterbalance the uh, Japanese referee for this match. So, like this segment, kind of, I guess it it was obviously there to set up Halloween Havoc, but it just kind of stood out as like, okay, why is it the second segment on the show? Like, how did it sort of relate to the first match? And then how does it relate to the next match? It was kind of weird. Well, I think because they want to have Sting on early because they're doing that contract signing later with him and Jake Roberts. So I thought it was, I thought this was not a bad placement. Um, um, actually, I thought it was fine. I thought it was fine. And, and I thought it was a good segment and explained, you know, added some intrigue, I guess, to the NWA title match. Um, you know, I, you know. Of course, I know who the referee is going to be for recruiting pick. It's an interesting choice, but it it does make sense um, as we'll find out in a couple weeks. But uh, I thought both were great. Watts is always good in this role, and and recruits. Uh, I like Rick recruit here with the suit and everything, and the title. It just he just looks like a a, a a superstar here. So we got Anderson and Eaton against Dave Diamond and Pez Watley. I put Don Diamond down. <laughs> <laughs> my notes. I'm sorry. Sorry, Dave Diamond. It, well, well, we had a Dave Diamond and a Diamond Dallas Page on this show. We had a lot of diamonds. Uh, I thought Pez got a little more than a, a normal well, enhancement guy was because of who he was. So that yeah. was kind of cool to see him. Uh, you know, the, they, they, Pez, st- man. they still lost. You know, Diamond almost got his shoulder torn off. Uh, they, they would work the shoulder and then Arn put him in that 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 uh the submission the shoulder submission at the end but yeah i, I liked seeing pistol pez out there it's kind of cool yeah he's still a solid worker and um um he looked good um of course he didn't 
he didn't take he didn't take the loss. Thank goodness. Um, I, I didn't think he was. Obviously, um, you know, typical match Anderson style match. Work with the arm, getting the submission victory with the arm lock. Um, I think people forgot to tell Bobby Eaton that the top rope rule is now gone, so he can probably <laughs> jump off the top rope again. But <laughs> it's just a nice, nice, quick squash match. You know, I always like to see Eaton and Anderson in the ring. And then another Bill Watts segment where he's sort of laying down the law and making rules. He describes what a lights out match is, which was a pretty cool description. And he's saying, you know, it doesn't mean that, you know, you turn the lights off. It was just a a signal that you turn the lights off and that means the show is over. You turn them back on. And then this last match is not part of the promotion. It's not sanctioned. So it's it's uh, so that was his description of a lights out match. And that's going to be Jake and Sting. They're going to be the last match. It's also a smart way to get them in the main event because I think, you know, normally the title is in the Mm -hmm. main event and you don't want Ron Simmons and the barbarian to be in the main event. You want sting who's your biggest star and Jake, this is the high, the, the most promoted match. So I thought that was a cool way to do that. Oh yeah. Sting Sting has a corny line because Jake's talking about the dealer's choice or the spinner's choice uh, mm -hmm. match and stings like, you know, he's like, oh, I could pick any of these things and it could be bad news for you. And Sting's like, ah, something about, did he, I think I think Sting was trying to do the line which which The Undertaker used to do, which is like, don't don't write checks that your ass can't cash. Yeah. But yeah. he was like, he was like, don't, something about Jake's mouth speaking for his butt. <laughs> yeah, don't, like, don't let your mouth override your butt or something yeah. like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. I was like, you know, Sting, all the what I just said about you in the beginning of the show where you're like the coolest dude, you dropped a few levels well, he with, with that away with it, He just gets away with it. He's always been like, he wasn't the, well, he, later on he became a really good promo, but yeah. but like he's, he, he's just, he has so much charisma, he just would just, he would just, just sneak right by with you know, like, <laughs> oh yeah, that was awesome. Wait a second, that wasn't that great. You know, look back at it. But um, I love to watch explaining the lights out rule. Um, I think this is you know this is Watts' strength that we, he did it a few weeks ago when he explained the top rope rule. Mm-hmm. He showed all these different highlights of different moves and what's legal, what's not. I like stuff like this. This just adds credibility to everything, and this is good. And then of course, like you said, we had the contract signing that followed. Um, between Jake Roberts and um, Sting for the Halloween Havoc for the spin the wheel make the deal match, and by God, we need to spin the wheel make the deal match at NXT's Halloween Havoc on October yeah, I hope we, so. We have to have one. I hope so, and I hope it's the same matches that were on this wheel because I wrote all of them down. I hope they still have it. I hope they had. I hope they got it in their um, their buyout for WCW. Got the, <laughs> hope they got the. Uh, I want the t-shirt. That same That's wheel. I want. I yeah, want that the- same wheel where you did like uh, later in the show. Cactus Jack kind of pulled the lever, mm-hmm. and they did about a three Mississippi until the thing spun yeah, around. Yeah, yeah, the guy behind there was like <laughs> he was smoking a cigarette. Forgot the uh, forgot to start spinning the wheel. Um, I thought the segment was good, but it could have been better, right? Like it just ended, and they both the guys just staring off, like looking at each other. Like I could have done with a nice pull apart. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There was no end to it. It was yeah, just it, like. All right, we're going to commercial break. Yeah, <laughs> but you know what'd be cool too if like Jake, I thought about this. I was booking, my mind was going crazy, and I was watching the segment. And it'd be cool with Jake Roberts talking about how the fear, how Steen's really scared, and how he's going to do all this stuff to him. He just keeps talking and talking and talking. How you don't have the guts to even sign that contract? You know, look at you, you're shaking, you're shivering, or something like that. And all of a sudden, Steen just signs a contract and walks off. See you at Halloween Havoc, like. 
oh shit, you know, his thing is serious. He's not scared. He's ready to mm-hmm. fight, right? I think mm-hmm. that would have been cool too. Um, but yeah, at the end, it was just kind of like, okay, guys, we'll be back with our next match. <laughs> and uh, and they're just sitting there like, uh, do we go now? Or is that is someone? They're looking for the cue to, to go to the back. It's just kind of funky. So, so here are the matches on the wheel. Texas Bull Rope Match, mm-hmm. Spinner's Choice, Russian Chain, Dog Collar Match, Ooh. <laughs> I Quit, Barbed Wire, Normal Cage Match, Lumberjack, but with belts. Yeah, so like a strap match, yeah. Yeah. Um, Prince of Darkness. Ugh. Yeah, that, that was, that's probably the worst one. Texas Death. Coal Miner's Glove and mm-hmm. First Blood. So those are the 12 matches that the wheel will choose for them. So of the 12, there's two matches that I didn't want to happen, and we got one of them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, what happened. The glove match. <laughs> yes, the, the, the Coal Miner's Glove match was a bummer. I wanted a cage match, honestly. Um, that I was Back then, a cage still kind of meant something, so I was hoping for a cage. Barbed wire would have been pretty brutal as well, I think. Yeah, and you know, for Philadelphia, it would have been a good... Uh... Now, they would have said a barbed wire match before. It didn't have to spin the wheel, make a deal, and the, the stip was just a barbed wire match. I think they could have sold a few more tickets in Philadelphia. Hmm. All right, Robbie Walker. Who is Robbie Walker? Robbie Walker is Thunderbolt Patterson's nephew. Oh, wow. Um... And he was also in that lawsuit from WCW back in the uh, what 2001 or whatever that was when they they uh, him Sonny Ono I think Thunderbolt Patterson was involved in that too and mm-hmm. uh, a lot of uh, uh, wrestlers um, who was there was racial discrimination against him so right they, they he was part of that deal so he was in the WCW system from 1992 to gosh to what 97 96 maybe longer than that. You know, or maybe even longer than that. Yeah, so um, he became hard work Bobby Walker later on, if you remember, on Nitro days. You mm. do jobs and wrestle a bunch of Saturday nights. Um, ton of potential. Great athlete, good-looking athlete, good-looking kid. Um, very green, obviously. He got you know. tired in this match, I think. He was doing a lot, and, of course, his adrenaline's probably pumping. This is his big opportunity. I could see why Watts liked him and... And also, you know, he he always liked Thunderbolt Patterson, so he's also doing a favor to that. And just, um, but he, he gets hurt though soon after this, so um, and he's out for a while. But uh, that, the the match was smart though. I mean, they they had him with Shane Douglas mm-hmm. and um, and they gave him two guys, two two uh, the enhancement guys, job guys. Pat Rose is really good, and so is Buddy Parker. And so they had guys that they could uh, definitely work with and. And uh, they had a decent match. Was something up with like the turnbuckles in this match? Because they were super loud, almost to the point of where I thought like the ropes were going to collapse mm-hmm. or something. Yeah, the audio was pretty strong, right? On the ring. Yeah. 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 But overall, a pretty decent TV match. So Douglas wins with the belly to belly. Uh, and they he's going to face uh, Brian Pillman on the next show. So th- th- now this segment, I immediately wanted to ask you about this next segment. <laughs> I do, I do. <laughs> Which was Cactus Jack and the Barbarian. And Cactus is training the Barbarian so that he can take Ron Simmons's power slam. So the way that he's training Ron, uh, Barbarian to, to take this power slam is Barbarian, there's three dudes in the ring. And Barbarian just goes up for all three dudes so they could body slam him. And I was just like, 
they're exposing how easy it is to body slam someone in pro wrestling in this segment. Especially a, a post of this huge man like Barbarian, right? Yeah. Though a future ice trains in this segment, and he's the, the biggest guy of the group that, you know, I, you know, he was so big that you can believe that he could probably body slam the Barbarian, right? And also it was a segment, not only this, that he can survive the power slam, and but he also can't beat, like he he's kicking out of like, what? All three guys were on yeah, him. Yeah, on top of him. And another, another funky segment. They should not have put this right behind the match that Buddy Lee Parker just wrestled. Oh, I know is, he a, in, is he in the thing? Yeah, he's one of the guys. Oh, I didn't recognize yeah. him. So, I mean, he was wearing just, he was wearing his top. He was wearing just his long tights. So, but they should have probably put this on a, a segment, maybe after the match, the next match, which is Marcus Bagwell versus Paul Lee. But, um, whatever. This is the weakest one of the training videos. You know, I just want to see Barbarian Big Boo bunch of fools, you know? Yeah, that's what I I wanted to see him to like destroy these dudes. And he was just like going up. No, he should have done, dude. It should like hang like, uh, pumpkins up right and he's just booting and breaking pumpkins like this is gonna be your head ron you're on simmons you know that would have been cool yeah that would have been, been way better all right i'll go back so, and rewrite that <laughs> so uh like you said bagwell against paul lee bagwell wins this match with a fisherman's suplex what was up with the bagwell's tights they were like brutus beefcake like yeah tights. he had the beefer that's why that's what i have them here they had the beefer tights on you know showing a little thigh for the ladies you know yeah. God, I think about Bagwell now, and I just got depressed thinking about like this this good looking young kid. Now look at this, what's going on with him now, and it's pretty sad. So we got a recap of the finish of the tag team title change, and they keep talking about Dustin and Barry not getting along already. Like what the hell? I know. I didn't even realize that was coming so quickly. I know. Uh, me too. I was like that, and it really frustrates me because I was frustrated as a kid when I saw this. So Austin and Pillman challenge them on the main event and I and Dustin accepts and and Barry's like, you know, I'm the I, I'm the leader of this team. Like, you know, you need to let me, uh, you know, make some of these decisions. Yeah, Don't but, jump into anything. You know, be a veteran. You know, I'm the veteran. You got to listen to me. I'm the one that decides and that kind of deal. Yeah, I did like Dustin using a great pally. I just yeah, loved it when yeah. they, they use that word palette. So strange seeing uh, Pillman and Austin. Of course, they're not the Hollywood Blondes yet, even though the network lists them as the Hollywood Blondes. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, it's so interesting that Pillman's the talker and Austin's oh, yeah. just a quiet oh, yeah. guy in the background. Oh, yeah. So just so strange. But, um, you know, uh, it's, uh, it's a glimpse of what's going to happen in the near future with them and the match they create. I, I do have a note about uh, from the Observer about this at the end. So they do the control center. Uh, Jim Ross looks into the ether as if he's talking to Jake the Snake on the green screen. And so Jake is back talking about some of the matches that that could be on the um, on the wheel if it was Spinner's Choice. Um, Simmons, Rude. Did uh, you get... Was it hard for... I didn't understand the Spinner's Choice was they get to pick their own match on the wheel or they had their own match so i was confused about i assume i thought you could pick whatever whatever was on was on was on the wheel but then in the next segment where jake and cactus are talking they're talking about like doing a match with a snake involved and that's clearly not on the wheel yeah yeah yeah. wait if i get that match what i have involved it's like i know so so i was kind of confused on that 
So there's a there's a Ron Simmons interview. There's another Rick Rude interview, and this is what I was talking about. Where obviously the control center segment is on every single show, so you can't like. But you know, we saw Rude, and then he does another interview, and we saw Jake, and he does another interview, and then we're going to see another Jake mm-hmm. interview. So it was just like, you know, maybe a I don't know. I just thought some of these segments were possibly. Uh, out a little bit out of order or whatever, but it was it, it was fine. I just saw you know you're just not used to seeing guys come on the show like three yeah, times. The, those control centers are not only attached to World Championship Wrestling, but they're also attached to all the syndicated shows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So obviously they don't have extra promos with Rick and Jake on them unless they show recaps from from World Championship Wrestling. But did you see the uh, the news of the? The tag team title match changed again. Now oh, it's yeah. the champions, oh, yeah. uh, Barry Windham and Dustin Rhodes, not defending against uh, the Steiner brothers who had the title shot. Now they're defending against the former tag team champions that they beat, Steve Williams and Terry Gordy. So funky like a monkey. Uh, Rick Torres Peck. Oh, he might have been on his way. Oh, yeah, he did Torres Peck because... In Japan, I think. Oh, was it was it Rick or Scott? It was Rick. But I do know, I do know Rick teams with Scott Norton in IWGP or in New Japan, and they lose the tag titles to, um, I want to say, is it Hase, not Hase, is it, yeah, is it Muda and Hase maybe or something like that? So in November, which is interesting, because then they go to W, they, Steiners go to WWF and, um, in um in December, I think doesn't like Scott win the TV title for like yes a second? yeah for like two weeks or something stupid Yo, yeah. it's coming up it's coming yeah up. um so yeah so Steiners are out and they're also trying to sign their contract and things are not going well with Mr. Mm-hmm. Bill Watts so there's an interview with uh. Flying Brian and Austin, they are okay with taking this non-title match because it's the second best thing to a title match. <laughs> okay. uh, Scotty Flamingo and the Z-Man. So I'm watching this match, and this is the match where I figure out that the light heavyweight division is dead because these are two guys. You know, Z-Man is a little is a little bigger than that division, mm-hmm. but Flamingo was in the division. And they do just holds and headlocks and holds and headlocks, and then you know, and then and then they they uh, uh, Z Man's shoulders messed up, and he does like a, this was kind of dumb to me because Flamingo's in the corner, and then Z Man does a shoulder block into the corner with his bad shoulder, and then has to sell it, and then that's when Flamingo gets back on the offense. I thought that was kind of dumb, but. Like, like they, they, the, except for the finish, they didn't really do anything light heavyweight style at all. And I was like, oh man, like, I don't want to see these guys do like headlocks and holds and stuff. I want to see these guys do a little bit more. But that's when I was like, yep, that division is dead. Is a, is a, it was a solid match. Are you talking about when, um, even when Z Man goes into shoulder first into Sky Flamingo and still continues to sell? Right. Well, you know what happens there? He, Sky Flamingo forgot to do whatever he's supposed to do. Back elbow. Like he's or, to lay, or, or like jump up and he goes into the or, corner or something. Or maybe move or like I said, get a, get a leg up or a back elbow. That's he just But, but I also there. thought that was kind of dumb because 
His shoulder was messed up, so why would he go shoulder first into oh, the corner I, oh, anyways? I'm 100% with you. It's just like guy get his knee worked on, but for some reason he decides to do a jumping knee in the corner, which he yeah. never does, yeah. you know, like Sting did versus Ric Flair at Grave Record Bash 1990. All of a sudden he's he has a flying knee in the corner to his repertoire all of a sudden. Yeah, convenient. <laughs> uh, okay, so maybe the worst segment on the show to me is Tony Schiavone and Eric Watts doing an interview. And this interview segment is to give Watts some TV time to get over. He's wearing like a Z Cavarici shirt. <laughs> um, there's there's like a missing piece in this interview because like it goes to black and then it comes back. I, I don't wonder, know what that was. I'm trying to think it was because there was used to be... I remember, I remember correctly, there was footage of him training with Dustin Rhodes... An empty arena and someone else. Maybe it was Brad Armstrong or something like that. They're like, I think that was what they showed. And they took out for some strange reason. But yeah, that sweater, where the hell it was. I thought it was an ugly Christmas sweater he was just wearing early in October. It was like a satiny shirt. (laughs) Yeah. I remember those shirts very well. (laughs) Yeah. Eric Watts. um, I wonder if he was extremely nervous here, but... Because he didn't really get out his personality at he's all. He's not likable. He can't look at the... Like, he's looking down. He doesn't look comfortable at all. Yeah, I think he's... This is his big... This is his first segment. His first promo, I would think. On So, he might have been just nervous, which I'll I'll give him benefit of doubt here. But, uh, yeah, it wasn't uh, it wasn't good. Though, I thought Tony Giovanni's just excellent in this segment, though. Yeah, he's this is the really best good. stuff that he does. Yeah, definitely. More Jake. This time, he's with Mick. And this is where they talk about you know, what the possible match is that if he gets the spinner's choice. And then, I don't know if this was planned or not, but Jake's whole thing, the the punchline was that, you know, a snake will eventually bite. And as he's saying this, he's got, he's wearing the glove and the snake's like hanging onto the glove. And Cactus has, has the mic. And then the snake grabs the foam mm-hmm. thing off the top of the mic just as Jake is saying that a snake will bite, I thought that was really cool. Yeah, yeah. Did you see Cactus' eyes, like, <laughs> eye on that snake the whole time? Like, dude, that thing was getting close. He dude. did not look comfortable. Yeah, but, you know, he, he was, man, respect, respect to uh, Cactus Jack on that segment there. So then we had the Vegas Connection against Gary Jackson and Joey Mags. This was a squash match but it was like a long squash match there's mm-hmm. just the the heels beating on these poor guys forever yeah and then um diamond Dallas page wins with uh with a leg drop the the only thing you know it was what it was but then the interview at the end where diamond Dallas page is basically saying you know bagwell how can you be rookie of the year was it is he talking about bagwell yeah 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 he says bagwell how can you be the rookie of the year i'm the rookie of the year and then he would tell you know Vinny Vegas to say something and then you heard the whatever accent Kevin Nash was trying to do that was the worst like he was like I know he's trying to be like that Vegas uh, town I guess I guess Italian accent I guess right yeah like, yeah um you know I wasn't too offended by it but it's just because I'm full-blood Italian I just think it's I usually get a chuckle at that kind of stuff um yeah it's a little longer squash match but you know they're giving Vegas something that I the whole point of this match in this interview was just to set up the main event for tomorrow, the next night, Sunday night's main event um, between Marcus Bagwell and DP, which I like that. I like I like that as a viewer who, like myself, who watched 
every WCW show from the Power Hour to Pro to World Worldwide to Main Event. I always, I always for sure, one hundred percent watched Main Event the next day. So I mean, for me, like this stuff was a good thing because I got something to look forward to. So more cactus because he is talking about Tony Atlas coming in. So mm-hmm. we had we had Butch Reed. Butch Reed was quickly gone. He was here and gone. And Tony Atlas kind of replaces Butch Reed. Tony Atlas looked gigantic. Oh my god! Yeah, his knees looked like shit though. He yeah, he, shot. He, yeah, he he wasn't moving well. So it was Atlas and Barbarian versus Jeff Daniels mm-hmm. and T. A. McCoy. Yeah. And you would think that oh, like this is another platform for Barbarian to look like a monster. No, this was very much a platform for Tony Atlas yeah. to beat guys up. That's what it was. Yeah, because this is his first match. He's just he's the replacement, I guess, for Bush Reed, right? When Bush Reed uh, was fired, so um, Tony Atlas, he was actually a pretty decent heel. He he, I remember seeing him on this old. Uh, I'm sure Nick McMoon knows this promotion. Um, uh, Joe Angelo Savoldi's uh, promotion in New York. International Championship Wrestling. I just remember, we used to get it on Sports Channel here in San Jose, and I remember being like, whoa, Tony Atlas is bad, because I only remember him being the Black Superman in World Class, of mm-hmm. course, WWF TV, and um, I was like, wow, and he's just like mean and nasty, and I just liked his promos. He had a really good promo, and so I was excited to see Tony Atlas show up in WCW at this time, but I remember re-watching some of these, like, about six, seven years ago, and I'm and now I'm already been you know trained and in the system and I know a little more about wrestling than back when I was a kid, obviously. And I remember thinking, wow, Antonio Atlas's knees are bad, and and I you know, but um, he didn't really last too long here. He wasn't here. I would think he'd only here for a few months. I literally didn't even remember him coming in. I I remember he there's one match we'll we'll watch in November that he has that's is probably most memorable television match that he has all right so then we had the main event which was austin and pillman versus dustin and supposedly barry but they told us that barry was not yet in the building and dustin comes out and he comes out with brad armstrong which makes sense because you have pillman who had just feuded with brad armstrong Mm -hmm. so barry's not there I like this match a lot. Pillman is the best heel mm-hmm. on the show, and he hasn't even been heel for that long, and he's already so good at it. Um, the setup is for Armstrong to get the hot tag, and right as Armstrong gets the hot tag, he's firing up. Then Barry shows up. He walks to the ring. He pulls Dustin down. They kind of are talking smack to each other. Barry slaps Dustin. Dustin slaps him back, and then Pillman and Austin, they start double-teaming uh, Armstrong in the ring. And so then Barry Windham comes in to settle, you know, to, to make it two and two. And because he does, he disqualifies the baby faces. So the heel team wins, and all because of, you know, Barry Windham disqualifying. Not, you know, they didn't lose titles or anything, but that's kind of how the, the match ended. Yeah, the match was really good, and all four guys have great chemistry together, and all tremendous workers. And um, 
I just remember being, I mean, I remember being like, wow, like, why are they already breaking these guys up? Dustin Rhodes I and Barry Windham. S- I didn't see any of, like, the clues coming, really. There was no The one clue. that you said, the one that you said, which was Barry's kind of, like, hogging the belts yeah. after they won. Yeah. That was the only clue. That was clue number one. Like, everything else, he was, like, they were just a good tag team. And I liked this team. I really did. I thought they were could have been a great babyface team. And I just felt it would have been more, when they do break up, which is very soon, um, I think it would have had more impact if they would have done it in like, you know, early 93 instead of like, you know, I don't know why they felt the need to rush Barry as a heel. Like they weren't short on the heel side. I mean, I understand. And Rick Rude gets a neck injury in December of 92, which I could see maybe, you know, switching someone because Rude's going to be out for who knows how long. Um, but it just seemed like. They're rushing this. I don't. I don't know why Watts felt he needed. Maybe Barry wanted to be heel, or but you know, but um, yeah, or maybe he just wanted Dustin and have a, a feud with someone, and and someone like a, a you know, veteran like Barry to get him over that. You know, the, to boost his credibility or standing more in the promotion. I don't know. I just thought they. I just remember being disappointed as a kid, and even disappointed now. Watching this, like, wow, why, why? Give me. Give me some history. I mean, I know they're a team. They've been a team since early 92. But, like, now they're finally going to run, so I think it would mean more when it, when it you know, a few more months down the line. All right, so a couple of tidbits from The Observer. I mentioned the Rick Steiner pec tear. And so Dave writes, it's ironic a major injury like this would take place amidst the controversy over Watts eliminating the medical insurance and workman's comp benefits to the wrestlers who signed new contracts. Mm -hmm. Under the new system, if the Steiners were to have signed the offer on the table to them and this uh, this injury were to have taken place early next year, not only would Rick have to pay for both the operation and rehab, but he also wouldn't be getting paid until he returned to the ring. And so Steiner's, you know, kind of at the end and they were unhappy with the latest conversation with Watts and Dave wrote that they had stormed out of the meeting with Watts, but they were going to have another one pretty soon about their contract. Hercules is gone. uh, So Super Invader is no more. Uh, And this whole Austin and Pillman thing... uh, it sounds like Austin did not really want to be in this team, not because he didn't like Brian, but because I think he was promised uh, Harley, right? Harley was going to be his manager. He was mm-hmm. going to go back out for the U.S. title, and that was kind of going to be his role, and he kind of, then he gets stuck with, with Brian. And it sounded like, at least at this part of The Observer, that Austin had actually got his way, and they were not going to be a long-term tag team, but obviously that was not the case. Yeah, yeah, they, they of course, end up being a uh, highly regarded tag team. So, Oh, yeah. So I think, I bet you anything, yeah, that, that Rick Steiner Peck thing was a work. Because I do know it was Rick and and Scott Norton that lost the IWGP tag team titles to Kejimuto and Hiroshi Hase in a freaking hell of a match, by the way. Fifth. I wish they would upload that on the New Japan World. I, I would watch that over and over again. It's really good. And I'm, and I think they dropped the titles because Steiners have to drop the titles because they're going to WWF soon. They're they they're you know in November. That's why they 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 did that. So, well, I will read forward for our next show in the uh, in, in the Observer to see 
if uh, if there yeah if there was something going on there with uh, with Rick. All right, we're gonna talk about bet online before we get to Carlos and Justin so they can do their G1 cast. Uh, Mike, our 49ers, mm. Mm. they were were like they they were basically pantsed on national TV today by the Miami Dolphins in one of the more frustrating. Uh, frustrating football experiences that we've seen in about two or three years here. Any, any? Yeah, it was a terrible thoughts. <laughs> I know it's still pretty raw. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, if you had the Miami Dolphins over the 49ers, either uh, either straight up or, or or with the points, I think the Niners are favored by like eight points or something today. Um, you, you won pretty big, and I hope that you made that bet on Bet Online. NBA Finals is over, but the NFL and Major League Baseball are still going full blast in the playoffs with baseball. So, Bet Online is going to be there for you from game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props. Bet Online gives you more options to wager than anywhere else. You can get in on their season opening bonuses today and start off wagering on wins, divisions, and championship futures all day, every day. So head on to Bet Online, but don't forget to use promo code BlueWire. That's BlueWire, all in one word. Bet Online, your online sports book experts. Fighting Media presents the G1 Cast. Justin Nipper and Carlos Duero. Yo. Yo. It's Justin. You're listening to the G1 cast presented by FightGameMedia.com. We're here for you with the daily coverage of the G1 in this year, 2020. <sighs> Day 13 and 14 in the books. What a weekend. The first show in Osaka and the show from today in Nagoya, A Block, B Blocks. Okay, one of these cards was one of the best top to bottom shows of the year. Hands down, so many people would agree. And one of these shows of the year, it wasn't. We're in the final stages of the G1, people. You got to strap in. We're getting on the ship. You can find Carlos on Twitter at Carlos Toro 360. He's on Fightful.com. He's on the Carlos Toro Media Channel on YouTube. And I'm Justin M. Nipper, K-N-I-P-P-E-R on Twitter. Yeah, please don't forget to donate to Jim Valley's GoFundMe if you haven't already. And you can find it in the show notes. Uh, He's moving out of the ICU soon, which is really good news. But on our next show... In the opening, I'm going to talk about that and I'll give you some more updates if you haven't heard. But you can find the updates from Carrie on the GoFundMe page. So that's awesome news. And I think that's a great way to start off the super deluxe edition of the G1 cast. Let's do it. Hey, it's Justin. I'm back with Carlos again. Carlos, we were here uh, a night ago for the All Japan Super Special 
podcast edition with John LaRocca and JD Olivia. What was your, uh, we had fun, right? It was a good time. What'd you think? Yeah. Yeah. We had a ton of fun there. It's, and it was the first time, you know, interacting with JD and John LaRocca and man, I just, you know, it's funny when you first proposed this and I thought, and you were thinking like, we could maybe like do something like 30 minutes and it ended up being like an hour. And I thought to myself, man, we could go to have gone for like another 30, 40 minutes. Like it was just a lot of fun and just a lot of great like opinions on, on all Japan that really it, it was a couple of few things I didn't even think about, but man, that was, it, it also didn't, it also helped that we had an awesome match to talk about in the finals between Zeus and Kento Miyahara. Yeah. It always helps when what you're talking about is it's already good. So it's kind of like they did the work for us. We just have to, you know, <laughs> you know, we just have to highlight it. I, I think that's ultimately like, that's what I like doing the most in this position. Like when we're writing is finding the really good stuff and highlighting it because there's so much stuff out there and it's easy for a company like all Japan that doesn't have much of a marketing powerhouse behind it. Companies that are good, that just don't have that distribution. They need people to talk about it if it's going to move forward. So yeah, why not? But yeah, so everyone it's on the podcast, uh, life, uh, sorry, fight, fight game podcast it's been a long week carlos seven days in a row oh yeah (laughs) but yeah check that out if you want to do break up some new japan recap time and get into all japan i would recommend this for anybody also who wants to maybe dip in and try out all japan or maybe they hadn't been uh watching for a while or you hadn't watched ever this would be a good time the champion carnival is like it sets up what I think is going to be the 2020 kind of storyline for most of those, those eight guys. So. Yeah. And not just that, I mean, it's a short tournament. Like it's not the usual, like 20 man feel. This was only 10 men separated into two blocks. So like you can really watch the entire champion carnival in what, three, three and a half hours. If, if like you just put all the tournament matches together into one. Yeah, and sometimes I think in a month or two that they'll have, don't quote me on this, but sometimes companies will just do a compilation DVD of their tournaments. So you don't have to go and watch every house show to find the matches that you want to see. It's just, you know, Champion Carnival 2020. So I feel like maybe in the next couple of months, All Japan will have something. The only thing is that stuff is harder to get for two reasons. One, of course, because it's in Japan, but... DVD regions uh, are different here, so you might have to deal with that business. But yeah, yeah, it, it's definitely something that you could, if you wanted to spend a weekend watching everything, it'd be a fun project, but it wouldn't be like sucking all of your time either. It's good. Uh, and it's it definitely has a different flavor from uh, New Japan. It just it felt totally different, even though on the surface, it's not really, there aren't too many differences. So yeah, check it out. So all Japan, that was last night. Okay, guys, we have an announcement. So next week, so we have one more week for New Japan G1 Climax. And there are going to be some final shows at Yogoku Kokugikan Sumo Hall, right? So we have a special guest on, I'm not sure exactly which show, I think it's going to be the first show, but we're going to be joined by wrestling writer, broadcaster, and historian, Fumi Saito. Woohoo! Um, I'm stoked. I'm very stoked about it. Carlos, this is your uh, first time uh, 
probably talking to him, but I know you're familiar with his work. Yeah, I am. When you, when you first proposed this to me, not, not even when we actually secured it, but the first time at the very start of the podcast, we, we were talking about potential guests and you brought up Fumi Saito and I thought in the back of my head, I don't know how we were, were able to get Fumi, but if that happens, man, that, that'd be such a huge, huge thing. And the fact that we're getting him like to talk about the tournament, at, especially at the very end of the tournament, because I believe it's, yeah, as you mentioned, I think it'll be at the uh, one of the block tournament finals or even the tournament finals itself. So th- this will be fun. This will be fun. I I really have cannot stop thinking about it when you told me about it a couple of days ago. Well, I know that uh, the final show, he will not be available because you told me he's going to the stardom show the next morning. So, uh, right. So the finals it's not it's going to be either one or two, but we're still working out the details. But he is going to be there and he's going to be our uh probably the best correspondent you could ask for. So win big for G1 cast. <laughs> uh, we'll keep you posted on that. I'll have more details uh, next week when it comes closer. That'll be like a Friday, Saturday time. So look out for that, people. Okay, let's just jump right into it. So we're going to rewind a little bit. So Saturday, Osaka, A Block, a lot of people have been raving about this. So yeah, we took the break to do the All Japan show but there's so much to talk about on this. Uh, Carlos, where do you want to start with this show? Uh, it's There's a lot. There's a lot. I, we were talking about the, the, the A Block show, and and I said this might have been my favorite show of this entire tournament. I think we can start just briefly recapping the I guess, Young Lion Smash that we had like at the very beginning where Yuya Omura beat Yotasuji, which it, it was an all right show. It was... Not the greatest, you know, it, not, it wasn't the greatest Young Lions match that we see in this tournament, but it, it was all right. And it further, you know, it further kind of carried on the story of Yuya Uemura just catching a lot of fire in the second half uh, of this G1 tournament. You know, it, it almost, at least in the first half to me, and maybe I'm the only one that's thinking that, but I thought like Yotasuji and Gabriel Kidd were like the most impressive looking guys in the first half. And now, you just kind of getting the shine and getting a lot of wins as a fleet. I think so too. Definitely from a point last week, I forget which time it was, but it was one of those wins over Gabriel Kidd. And I think it's that and the combination of them being able to get over his new finish. Well, not new finish, but that uh, double on double overhook suplex. They called it like the uh, deadbolt suplex or something like that. I think in the promo, but yeah, that's his thing. And when they take the time to put those moves over, it's really clear to see that because they're not doing much else. They're either struggling for holds against each other or they're landing spots. And when they're just clear and simply executed, you don't forget them. Like that thing that Suplex he does looks great. The guy is like, uh, he looks like the St. Louis arch. He's arching his back. Completely. Um, yeah, it was great. But again, I think one of the struggles of the G1 cast this year is trying to come up with uh, more, um, what's the word, or less nebulous things to say about these great matches. But again, it was good. And Lemura is on the come up, seems so. So maybe he'll be out of those black tights sooner or later. I don't know. <laughs> um, 
then, oh boy, I, I want to jump. I just want to skip right to this. I want to go right into the Jeff Cobb Ishii match because it was freaking awesome. And everybody that I've spoken with says pretty much the same thing. And everybody else, myself included, I feel like this is one of Cobb's best matches ever. Uh, Carlos, what did you think of this match? This was, I mean, if you're looking for maybe the best like Haas versus Haas match in this tournament, look no further than this one. Like this was just two big, huge, tough guys just battling each other with like going at it at a hundred percent, like hundred miles per hour with their ferocity, their chops, the hell, there was even a moment like halfway for the match where Cobb just almost deadlifts Tomohiro Shi for what, like an exploder suplex that I have never seen anyone throw Ishii that far through him. Like he threw him halfway across the ring. Like it was like almost like to to the corner of one side of the ring and Ishii was getting up on the other side uh, of the ring, which I've never seen Ishii get manhandled like that before. I took a note on that. I took a specific note on that spot you're talking about. Yeah, it's... Yeah, like, this was fantastic. Like, Cobb, we've been mentioning it time and time again, Cobb has looked so good throughout this tournament and has looked even better. And... It was just really damn good. So th- it ended with Cobb hitting a pow- pop-up powerbomb and then going for a tour of the islands. And it was, it, it was like crisp. It was clean. It was just, again, it was just two hosses, two big guys just going at each other, like two trains, you know, just colliding into each other. And it was about as beautiful and destructive as you could possibly expect. That is a perfect way to put it. I mean, that's exactly what it was. There is a beauty to it. I don't understand it completely, but there is something like elegant about a lot of that. Like the, the, the suplex you were talking about. So that note that I wrote. Okay. So what I got from that spot from the top of my head, let's go. So he had a, it was like an exploder suplex and it seemed maybe like, him or Ishii, they, he lost his grip. Cobb lost his grip a little bit, but it wasn't a disaster or anything. So he just kind of squatted down lower, like kind of adjusted his base and widened up, put his hand, you know, adjusted his grip again. And then kind of because he was lower, his base functioned like a spring. Like he spring loaded Ishii and Ishii went, he got air. And Ishii's quite small too. So it's probably no thing for Cobb. So, yeah, I want to see some sound effects like a, a cannon coming from Cobb to Ishii. <laughs> uh, that was awesome. Uh, I'm trying to think of other great things about this match. It was just like you can't help but feel like great for Jeff Cobb, it, especially if you watched since last year's tournament. Not like it was bad or anything. It was great. But it's, this is a different guy. I don't know what exactly he does. I'd like to talk to him soon if we can, but this everybody notices it. It's very noticeable. Um, the confidence, the selling game, the look. Um, he and he has that um, capacity to really. If something goes wrong the last minute, he's so strong that he can make things work with a deadlift. It's amazing. 
Um, and this was 15 minutes too, but it felt like 10 minutes. It felt even shorter. It just flew. All action. Yeah, I'll say, uh, I yeah, no, I actually thought it, it felt like a 15 minute match, but the last half uh, kind of flew by. That I, I would say, it, the second half of the match just kind of like kept, it, it felt like a lot, it felt like it was like three, four minutes, but it, it was a well-paced match. I really have no complaint with the time. I mean, if they had gone a little longer, I wouldn't have minded. If they had gone a little shorter, I wouldn't have minded either. But 15 minutes is, you know, right there at, at a good spot for like the first match, first tournament match of the uh, of the card. Yeah. And I know everybody has a different schedule. And I've talked to so many people who are at different points of watching the G1. I, some friends are watching some stuff from last week. Hey, that's totally cool. But with this match, if you can't watch it, at least go to the New Japan site and check the results. And they have pictures, these awesome pictures uh, for each match. And the pictures from this match are just, it's like a comic book or something. These guys are, they look like two squares. Their bodies are so square. And they're flying like Osprey. Or uh, any just as good as anybody who's 200 pounds or under. There is no like heaviness to this, even though these guys are come off as total heavyweight hosses. It's it's pretty amazing to think that that's just the first match between them. So I can't wait until they can do it again. Really, for real. I think everybody feels that way, too. Okay, so the next match. Okay, match. I want to use match loosely quote-unquote match. Jay White and Yujiro Takahashi. I, I don't really know how to unload this. So, Carlos, could you break this down in a in a way that wasn't as convoluted as the match itself? Okay, so, uh, first of all, I, I absolutely love this match. Like, this was not... This was not a match, but this was phenomenal storytelling that I, that even I thought that what, what, like this blew me away, even, and even I thought like this was going to be a huge story driven match, but this was fantastic. So it started out with Yujiro kind of going into the center of the ring and just dropping himself almost like Kevin Nash finger poke of doom style from WCW, I think it was like 1999. And what happened was, he was going to going to take the fall and give JY the easy two points because well, they're both Buddha Club members and JY's the leader. And JY just kind of toyed with him, even as his stablemate was like laying in the middle of the ring, ready to just hand him a win. And every time he tried to to cover Yudro, JY would just abandon it after one. And then usually just kept getting increasingly frustrated to the point that when JY finally went for the cover on like attempt number five, he usually finally kicked out and he was already like beyond pissed at this point. And Jay White, which is mad at the supposed insubordination from Yujiro, and Yujiro in response try gave him a a surprise roll-up and a then an inside cradle that I think a lot of people at you know at the arena legit thought that Yujiro might have actually going might have actually won it, and then Yujiro it like Yujiro went for a low blow and then he actually hits Miami Shine and the commentary team went ballistic 
for Yujiro Takahashi and nearly picked up the win, but at the end, JY recovered. He hit a low blow onto Yujiro, hit the switchblade, and then gets the win. Not This wasn't even four minutes long, but there is so much to unpack here. So the storyline between Jay White and the other top guy at Bullet Club that's competing in this tournament, Evil. We've kind of sort of spoken a lot about uh, about this, but it was more speculatory. But this really does kind of feel like we are there's going to be like some type of civil war or, or at least some type of unrest among the Bullet Club factor. Because a couple of days ago, Jay White was sort of he was backstage and had a message for evil. And it wasn't even like an amicable, like, hey, welcome to the welcome to the club. But we've never uh, even though we've never met, it was almost kind of antagonistic in, in, in a way. And then you bring on Yudro, another Bullet Club member, and then he's the one who has to deal with Jay White and Gato's BS. And after the match, Jay White was kind of like acting like a lunatic, like. Some type of you know crazed megalomania. I just like wonder like what the hell just happened, and we just chastising Gato and just asking him like, did you put him up to this? Did like almost have, like he's blaming Gato for Jay White kind of goofing around and treating Yujiro poorly. And there was there was a lot to just sort of unpack this. I think you can't really appreciate the storytelling that was in this match unless you knew the the inner workings of Bullet Club and what's been going on for the pandemic and evil joining the stable and being the double champion with Jay White still being the U.S. So now it's kind of like a a bit of energy, like who's the real leader? Because Jay White had, was the leader pre-pandemic, but evil was the one who actually beat Naito and became the double champion. So there's a lot. I mean, I love this match. If you knew, if you know a lot about the Bullet Club workings and what's been going on, I actually would recommend to go out and watch this match. Not even five minutes long, but there is just so much to just kind of like unload and process here. Yeah, when I said convoluted uh, earlier, I mean, I mean it is, but I don't mean that in a pejorative way. It's just uh, it it takes a lot of. Uh, like it took us a while to just explain all of the little intricacies of what happened in a match that was under five minutes. And I really, that's one thing I liked most about it in like the macro sense, right? On this show, because we're going to get to it, the next matches on the card were some of the best like, pure wrestling matches of the year for sure. But this felt so well placed at, on the six card program that it, it really, um, as me as a fan, it kind of like gave me a different vibe. It didn't. It didn't feel like it was shoehorned in. It just felt like, okay, here's the time of the show. This element is going to happen. So we're going to take a breather, and then we're going to take a deep breath, and then we're going to have some wild physical matches coming up. So I, I like that part of it. Um, I do have one issue and kind of a peeve is that with this is that this sort of uh, like disobedient bullet club member during the G1 this often happens during the G1 and it never seems to lead to a payoff uh for 
those who've kind of been watching the past couple of years, there are some moments I can't think of any off the top of my head, but uh, they often involve Yujiro, it seems like, but I'm waiting to see how this pays off. And like you said, there are a lot of parts that we need to uh, kind of wait and see what happens uh, with uh, the points, um, with what certain wrestlers are going to do in and outside the ring, certain matches. So it was a great way of conveying a lot of information without having to do much or waste much time like some other companies do. And I mean, I'm saying that in a really like, this was less than five minutes and we're, I'm sitting here yabbering on about it for more than, you know, whatever. I'm not timing myself, but it feels longer than the match. And that match is much better than me. So, yeah. <laughs> so that's something you, you can just pop on and, and check it out real quick, too. It's, it's a good bang for your buck. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, I'm really curious to see where this goes because... There's a part of me that's kind of now wishing for like evil versus Jay White in the finals, which is possible, which is still possible. Just to kind of see where where it goes, because there's because there is, I guess that would be the payoff. Evil versus Jay White, the winner wins the G1. There's something brewing, but I'm not sure what exactly will happen. It really just depends on the results. So I, that's the fun part about the G1 is those couple of weeks where we can sit around and talk and speculate because it's set up in a way where there are a couple different scenarios where, okay, this would be interesting, but this also might be interesting. You know, it, it's, it's real craftsmanship on Gato and company's part. It's very cool. So yeah, that was the short, um, short match. And then we moved right into it. So we went to Osprey and Taichi. This is a really nice match. This was one of my favorites of the whole tournament so far. And definitely Taichi's best performance. Maybe Will Osprey's not his best performance. Of course, it was a great performance, but he's Will Osprey. He's on a different level. So anyway, Carlos, what's your take on this guy, this match? Uh, this was... Really, really good. I think it further just legitimizes Tai Chi as a guy that just belongs in there at the, you know, at the heavyweight division. But I don't know. It was just, this is really, really good. I I think it's, I think because it was sandwiched in the, the two great matches that preceded it, but two great matches for the completely different reasons. And then we get two great matches afterwards. I don't know. I did. It just didn't, it didn't resonate with me as much as some of these other matches did, but by no means was it bad, you know, Osprey got some really, really good moves in. I mean, he, shooting star press got like a like a corkscrew senton bomb that was that was really really awesome and 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 the cool thing is there was another great moment where osprey tried to go for the os cutter and tai chi yeah caught him and then gets a and get and suplexes him which i thought was a really really nice counter but you know it had your typical bells and whistles from from osprey and tai chi did you know, a lot of the stuff that he was doing at the start of the tournament where he was using the, the mallet, which, I mean, we've already exhausted that whole 
thing, you know, 10 times over. So I'm not going to repeat my grievances with it. And, you know, they choked Osprey with, with the mic cord. So, I mean, it, it, it felt like this match was good, but there wasn't anything that we haven't seen from either guy that we've already seen uh, throughout this tournament. Yeah, that's that's right. Although I would say what we've seen from Taichi throughout this tournament, this would be the best example of it. Maybe this and the Jay White match. But, I mean, this the timing on both of this, these guys' parts in this match was awesome. And I got to say, like, Osprey, whatever you want to say about Osprey, athletically, I've never seen people wrestle with such, like, I don't know what it is, but it's, like, it's dynamic, but it's every time it's almost perfect. Although I'm noticing sometimes he's really trying some new and crazy ideas, but I think sometimes he's, have you noticed he sometimes overshoots some of his high spots and kind of goes, woo. And it seems like he's almost, he always saves it, but he's always, I'm always kind of worried. Do you ever get that feeling when you're watching some of these Osprey matches? Yeah. I mean, I still do, but it, not as much as well, like when he was a junior heavyweight, because when he was a junior heavyweight, um, and that was like, that was my worry with him, but like amplified to like an 11 throughout like 75% of his matches. Um, there is. Okay. So when I, I was watching it live last night and I'm messing around, I'm looking at the Twitter and a fellow, I can't remember his name, Mark. I think it's Mark from, I don't remember his handle, but Mark from Twitter, if you're listening, Mark from Twitter, from the UK, I think. How's it going? He asked, I think, a legitimate and fair question, because I was sort of thinking this too. Do you think for some reason Will Ospreay has become more unlikable in a way? Uh, intentionally, unintentionally, I don't know. Just in terms of the ring character. No, I'm not talking about any outside stuff. I'm that's there's a boundary that's a different. That's different. I'm talking about just as the character inside the ring. I was actually thinking the exact same thing at the very start of the match. So, if for those who didn't get to see the match, so Osprey was very, very obnoxious, like, like super condescending. So it started with Tai Chi and Osprey. It's kind of locking up a little bit, and then Osprey, you know, drives him to the ropes. And then referees tried to stop and and then Osprey just keeps taunting him, just keeps and not in not even like in a sporty kind of way. Like he was just being like a condescending prick. And it wasn't like a one-time thing. He like he did it for like pretty much like the first two, three minutes of the match. Like he was just really, really unlikable. And I kind of thought to myself, like, who is the real heel in this? Because Tai Chi, okay, Mallet aside and Mike Cord aside, but that came after. But like the first couple of minutes, I kind of think to myself, I'm actually kind of rooting for Tai Chi. Like from a character perspective, like Osprey's being a dick here. And that's a good point because when when you put it like that, that makes me feel like actually maybe he was doing some of it intentionally because possibly something is coming down the road for Tai Chi where maybe he changes his character because in this G1, he's definitely felt like a baby face in more of his matches than a heel. And maybe this was part of that. And I've seen Will Ospreay play heel really well. I was there at the Super J Cup in Seattle, or 
Tacoma last year with him and Amazing Red. They had that first round match. And the story generally there was, you know, Will played heel because no one was going to boo Amazing Red ever. And he gave up unbelievable performance. That match was on another level as well. But but Osprey was very, very good. He was very zoned in and focused. He, he had his role carved out. Here, sometimes it feels like, yeah, this is his character, but sometimes it's just like, I don't know how to describe it other than, have you ever been to a stand-up comedy show where you're like not not a a big one, but more like a local one or like open mic where you're watching someone tell jokes on stage and they're bombing, but they don't realize why they're bombing and they just kind of keep going. Sometimes I get that vibe from Osprey. (laughs) You know, I'm not, I don't mean, I don't know the guy. I'm not trying to attack his character or anything, but the cheekiness, I just don't think it works in that setting because the fans aren't reacting you know, that kind of stuff is from that came from the Western kind of wrestling where uh, being prideful and arrogant would elicit some kind of like loud response here. Not only are we in Japan, but we're in the pandemic uh, context. So I, that kind of stuff just doesn't make any sense if you're trying to believe this is real. This is OK. I'm in a wrestling match. I he doesn't feel like he struggles at all. I mean, in some ways that's cool because he's amazing and he never what he never makes too many mistakes. He's like a superhero. But I mean, I think he wants to be Kento Mihara. Mm-hmm. I think he's going for that like sassy but nice guy and amazing athlete kind of character, but it's just not coming through to me. I think he I think it's more effective as he looks at every match and goes, what does this Will Ospreay ring character need to be against Taichi or against Takagi or against Ishii? And he needs, and that'll come like this two years ago. It, he looked like a little boy. I, I, we had just heard of him and we're talking about him almost every day. Now he's one of the most talked about wrestlers in the world. So all that said, I have lots of faith in him. I'm sure he'll be just fine. But, and and not to say this was, hell of a match for Taichi too. He's got charisma. His timing was great in this. The announcers were calling him Dangerous T as an ode to his trainer, Dangerous K, Toshiaki Kawada. Um, yeah, there was some great... I, I love the spot where Osprey came off the second rope for an os cutter and somehow Taichi just timed this kick perfectly, like a super kick or something, uh, like Adam Cole style. It, was, it looked great on camera. Yeah, this was, you know, even though this match, this wasn't my favorite nor the second favorite match on this card, Tai Chi, this match really does show that Tai Chi, you know, put him in a, against a good opponent and he'll he'll deliver. Well, I think there's a caveat there because I think on this Osprey versus Tai Chi on any other of the cards, maybe from this week, it has a it stands a chance of being the best on any of those cards. If it was on the B block that we're going to talk about later, it would hands down be the best match, but I digress. Yeah. Yeah. I would say that. Yeah. But we'll get to that later. There are reasons, but yeah, it's definitely worth checking out though. So Osprey Tai Chi. Yeah. It was about 16, 17 minutes. Okay. And then semi main and main. I, so we've been talking about 
some of the really greatest wrestling in the world right now. It sounds like I'm kissing ass, but I mean, just watch these matches. It's like, what's going on? And then we got these two matches. The, 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 the gear shifted, especially in this Ibushi and Suzuki match. If you haven't uh, heard or watched it or seen clips of it, you have to do that now. Like, you should just pause it and just watch at least clips from that because this was on another level. How do you rate this, Carlos? What do you when you were watching this? What were you feeling? So the first few minutes. So it's funny because first few minutes of the match, I look. They were they were going at it like a slower paced version of kind of what you would expect uh, out of a pancreas match. And for the shout outs to anyone that actually gets the reference. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. It it was dude, it was super MMA heavy. It, and and uh, the, about four minutes later, I kind of thinking to myself, this how the match is gonna be? Because I wouldn't mind, but it was like so completely different. But then as the match went on, this became so much less of a wrestling match and just really a, a fight and a showcase of like tough man one-upsmanship where Suzuki, it felt like to me, Suzuki, first of all, there, you have to kind of highlight so the match, there was barely any actual like wrestling moves that we that were so used to seeing. This was like almost exclusively nothing but stripes and kicks and forearms and, and chops and slaps, but this was damn awesome. So it got to a point where Suzuki, he was even the, almost like he didn't really care much about the win. He just wanted to just have a great fight. And Ibushi brought it to him. There was a moment in the match where both of these guys were just on the mat and just started to get to get up and they start headbutting each other. Not like your traditional like work headbutt, like like it was like foreheads clashing with foreheads. Like, and you know, you know what I mean? That like those are spots that I always wins at because like I always where it like it gives me like bad Shibata, you know, flashbacks, but it it was it was really damn good. Ibushi got the got the win by going for a stand-up Kamigoye coming out of a out of a Suzuki bossing crab and then he hits and, and then Ibushi hits a second Kamigoye and then just picks a, and then picks up the win. But the the one thing that I loved was and this is what makes Suzuki so great. The facial expressions he exhibited throughout this whole match was nothing short of unbelievable. He was like, and you can tell, like he was a guy that wanted to fight. He didn't really care much at this point about winning the G1 tournament. It was about give me the best fights and I just want to beat people up. And Ibushi was more than happy to apply. It only came to a point where like when they were doing the headbutt trading spot, like Ibushi almost was even like laughing and smiling like Suzuki, like almost like he was starting to enjoy it in like the same like sadistic way that Suzuki likes to enjoy his matches. And at the very end of the match, when he got, when Suzuki got hit with not one, but two Kamigoyes, he, as he was taking the pin, Suzuki just couldn't help but smile like this and like throughout the entire time, not even like independent, like, oh man, this is a good man. It was like, no, like, he gave me a fight and that's what I wanted. And he was like smiling all the way, like even after the match and walking towards the back. 
this was a really, really good match in a non-traditional, like pro wrestling type of sense. Like this, like if you want to, like if you want to watch a fight in the confines of pro wrestling, this is it. Yeah, on commentary they were making references to UWF early on. I mean, that's- yeah, I did. I did hear. I did kind of hear like at the very beginning of the match, like two, three minutes in. They, they I did kind of hear like, oh, yeah, UWF. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because, I mean, that's it, what it felt like. It was like uh, they were trying to get a one-up on uh, Bloodsport before tonight because I mean, that's pretty <laughs> much what it felt like. It felt like a souped-up Bloodsport match. Um, Dave Meltzer, the Wrestling Observer, he tweeted and said that he described it as like a – he said on the podcast last night too with Brian, he said it felt more like a one-take fight, like a fight scene from a movie rather than um, a wrestling match, a traditional wrestling match. Um, and it, it did. I mean, it had peaks and valleys. I mean, the whole the whole segment where they were outside the ring, that that's a whole different scene. That was the like the middle point where uh, Suzuki, ref- he called Ibushi out. He said, Ibushi, come on, get out here. He sat on the ramp and waited for him to come out. They brawled all over the place. The slaps in this match. I would like to rewatch this and... Um, count up all of the strikes landed for each for each uh, guy kind of statted out like a um you know like we see in MMA or boxing where like how many headshots how many body shots uh, because <laughs> let's get let's get Dan Canobio from CompuBox and just have them tally up the strikes i mean if it's going to be like this going forward uh we might have to <laughs> that's that's <laughs> okay a quick sidebar but stats like that when AEW said stats, like that was thinking stats like that. I didn't think just like a win loss record, but I digress. Uh, that, that's just my own projection of my, my, my pickiness. But anyway, um, yeah. Gosh, that's like, is it the best match of the tournament? Well, you were saying maybe otherwise. <laughs> No, I think the next match that we're about to talk yeah. is the best match of the tournament. Yeah. But this is this this is gonna end up being in the top five. I, would would you say this might be one of the best of the year? Oof. That that's tough because we've had even in the pandemic days, like we've had some really, really good matches. I didn't I would have to take a look. I mean, I think there's it's funny because like I don't think there's a match this year that I can just justifiably say undoubtedly this is the best match of the year I think it's still sort of open-ended competition maybe to me in my eyes maybe you know Hangman Page and Kenny Omega versus the Young Bucks from back in February I think that right now still has my best of the year vote but it's still open-ended enough with so many great matches that you can you can make a strong case for a lot of matches like maybe a dozen matches up to this point Sounds like a podcast idea, <laughs> but that'll be later because this G1, <laughs> it doesn't stop. But yeah. Um, okay. How about this? How would you rank this match, Takagi versus Okada, with Takagi's other matches so far in the G1? Because he had a really great match with Will Ospreay. He had a really great match with EC. Um, yeah. He's on fire too. So where do you rank it? I put it up to top. I honestly think I actually thought this was a better match than the Osprey match. And I know this got the five stars from from Dave Meltzer. First of all, 
great match. I, I disagree. I don't think this was a, that was a five-star match. I think this was closer to, to five stars, in my opinion. 100%. This match, 100%. This match, you have to... You'd have to come into this match, like I mentioned with the Yudro and Jay White match, you'd have to come into this match kind of knowing a little bit of what was going on previously to really like 100% fully appreciated. So as I, for those of you that did not catch the show a couple of days ago, uh, Shingo was making a promo, was cutting a promo after he had won his match, and he was talking about Okada and talking about how, uh, you know, uncharacteristic... Uh, Okada's wrestling has been in this tournament. He has not been hitting the Rainmaker. And he was saying, like, you know what? Uh, you know what? You're not going to hit the Rainmaker. I might as well be doing hitting the Rainmaker. And he was, like, goading Okada to just be the Okada of old and 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 beat him that way. And it was a nice little wrinkle to a match. And I said a couple of days ago, it'd be really, really cool if Shingo would hit the Rainmaker on Okada and wins that way. We actually kind of got that spot where Shingo was going. Shingo actually hit the Rainmaker on Okada, and you can correct me, Justin, if I'm wrong, but I don't think I've ever seen a, the Japanese commentary this worked up in the entire tournament. Uh, yeah, other when you know when Takai hit the hit the Rainmaker, and then did the Okada pose and go for the Pumping Bomber, but Okada would eventually interrupt the, the Pumping Bomber. But in that like brief 15, 20-second span, I've never seen the commentary team be as, you know, as expressive as just absolute what-the-fuckery uh, as we've seen in, in this tournament. Like, they were going absolute bananas over that spot. Yeah, you're right. They they were, <clears throat> excuse me, they were, but um to me I when I hear it it's more of like an indicator of what the storyline is. It's like they're I don't know how to describe it more articulately, but those cues are what you want to be looking for if you want to if you're interested in knowing what's going to happen going forward. I wouldn't look at like promos or anything that people say on the New Japan show. The cues from like the commentators, the reactions, those are what you got to be looking for to kind of see and feel the story. And you're right. They were, to me, it felt artificial, a little artificial, but like Motoi-san, she's sometimes a little bit hokey, uh, but it's good. It's good. I mean, it's a pure, it's a really cute, pure, clean product. But sometimes, yeah, whatever. It's that is what it is, and <laughs> I'm I'm in love with her anyway. No, just kidding. Sorry, sorry. Um, <laughs> she knows. You're the one who's married, not me. I know. <laughs> Trust me, she knows. She knows of my my <laughs> my standing. Um, what was I saying, Carlos? I got really sidetracked. Um, the, the commentary hokiness. Uh yeah, yeah. But you're right. That's um, that's what it was. You're, it was a big point because I think this is the big turning point in Okada's storyline for the G1 because we were talking about it just a couple of days ago. Like, hey, it's, Okada's been kind of quiet recently, but there's been a plan the whole time. He has 10 points now um, and he's he's completely back in. I mean, 
if I saw him in the finals, I wouldn't be surprised. I'm not predicting it, but I could see him making a last minute run. I mean, that they that's the benefit of when you stick to your canon and when you stick to like just don't retroactively change the story every week. If you stick to the roots, like it will bear fruit outside of the moment. It will bear fruit in the future. Like the fact that G1 has been so solid, you can always go back to those facts and use them. You can always go back to the fact that Okada was a legitimate winner. He was the longest reigning IWGP champ. He's won the G1 before. Those little facts go, okay, well, maybe, you know, maybe he could. Because if he did, we could talk about, you know, this or that. But logically, if this were, quote unquote, real, it makes sense. You know, Roger Federer doesn't win the US Open every year. But I think a lot of people say he's the best tennis player. So, I don't know. And, um, but yeah, this match, you know what I got out of this? And I don't. I need to see more of them together. But when I saw this, I go, oh, Okada found his new Kenny Omega. Ooh, that's an interesting point. It's, it's funny because you would think that like do Japan wants to kind of bring in Will Ospreay and like fill that Kenny Omega role. But as far as like an Okada open and like if you think about it. No opponent in this entire G1 so far was able to bring Okada back to his former self and challenge him in a way that we haven't seen throughout this pandemic. But Takagi was able to do it. He was the guy that did it. He was the guy that was able to bring to challenge Okada and be the guy that we've seen hold the IWGP title longer than anyone else. Give us some, some of the greatest wrestling matches in history. And... And I love the ending of this match, even though I thought it would have been great to see Shingo pick up the win. It ended with Shingo. Uh, he didn't tap out. He pretty much lost consciousness and the referee stopped the fight when Okada hit the money clip on Shingo Takagi, which I think it was the first, first time, time ever Okada's won. He's won the with the money clip since like the, the second or third match that he had in the G1. So they were saving that move for this. Uh, but to be honest, I just don't think there's any other. There's no way of getting this move over. <laughs> like Takagi did a great job of selling it. It's just like, I don't know. It's when he puts it on. It's like when John Cena puts on the STFU. You're just kind of like, man, what, what are you doing? Yeah. Well, at the very least, Okada kind of looks better in yes. applying the, the, than Cena because I can only count like a handful of times Cena has actually applied the SDFU, you know, like properly, oh, not yeah. like just like just like put it, put like both of his forearms like on the side of his opponent's head instead of like I guess how you're actually supposed to do it, which is like bring one of your arms and just like wrap it around your opponent's neck. Yeah, I think I meant like more uh, like the function of that of that finish when both guys have a more effective finish in a rainmaker mm -hmm. just because it's less about like the technique and more about um it's a different kind of finish it's a sudden finish the fu that's like kind of sudden right you can hit it out anywhere ok uh, okada can hit rainmaker pretty much out of anywhere submission is something that you have to work into well 
it becomes a whole different aspect of like booking of the finish. That's something I'd like to talk to John LaRocca about is uh, booking a proper submission uh, finish and making it really work because the drama is different and the timing is different. It could be really slow, but in real life, if you've ever been in any kind of submission hold, you often tap within half a second if it's applied properly. So I think that needs to be factored into wrestling eventually as well. And, and I think part of the problem is that he's experimenting with this in the middle of the G1. Whereas if he had done, if he had done this, like in like the, the, the small matches and the small, the small shows that we had pre G1, I don't think would have had much of a problem because by then we already would know that, you know, he is trying to work that out and it could be something big, but he's bringing this out and it's almost like he's He's using the G1 to test it out, and that's not what the G1 is all about. Especially for a guy at the, you know with the caliber of wrestler that Okada is, it just it, I would have loved it if he had tried experimenting with it in other times that isn't the G1. Yeah, that is what it is. But needless to say, it was Okada's hands down best match of the tournament, probably Takagi's best match of the tournament, and. To the point about Kenny, I really say that, and I'm that's what I'm basing more on the technique style in the ring. From the beginning of this match, even though they went close to 30 minutes, the pace is, I, I don't see people, I don't see many people work this intense cardio pace other than Takagi's always been popular or not popular kind of known for that like a big guy who can run and Kenny kind of falls into that too he's he's not huge but he's quite big and in those Okada matches especially um it's you can see them sprinting you, there are some people that are they're bigger and that when they they walk or take strides in the ring the the, the gate is bigger so it's less explosive both of those guys are as explosive where Okada is really smooth. So it's always, there's a really cool rhythm to a lot of it. And I felt like the rhythm between the Kenny matches, I would say like Kenny versus Okada number three in 2017 from the G1. It was where they were rushing to the 30 minute mark. It wasn't exactly like that, but I would say there, you know, I would have to go back and watch, but it felt like a mad dash sort of mash at uh, uh, at points. What did you think about Takagi's performance in this? This was this was fantastic. I mean, I would say it's maybe Takagi's best performance of the G one, which is which is really maybe arguably since the pandemic, which is really really saying something. Considering like at the start of the of the tournament, I had said that like Chingo Takagi. It has been New Japan's MVP as far as match quality in these empty arena limited capacity shows because like no one has been able to work in that environment as well as Shingo in this tournament to be able to give that kind of match against Okada, who, let's be honest, after the Ibushi match, you know, the matches that we've seen, they've not been that great as you know, and I'm saying not great on a curve, you know, relatively speaking, not impressive. Yeah, it's not the Okada level of greatness that we're accustomed to seeing. Only Bushi and Shingo have been able to bring that out of Okada. And Shingo did it much better than Bushi ever did. Yeah, I don't know if it's it's them bringing it out of him or him putting himself on cruise control 
until um, Ghetto says otherwise, until Ghetto says, okay, you know, this is the one that I need you to make this guy. Uh, I, he's really a, a Ric Flair type where he's so functional. He's a real like he, handyman. He can, he can be that character. He can be high flyer. He can be submission guy. He can be arrogant heel. He can be silly balloons guy. He's got it all. Now I am very curious over what's going to happen with Okada because we both mentioned how Okada is, he's capable of winning, uh, winning the A block. But you look at the tiebreakers, like he already has a loss to Ibushi and a loss to Jay White. So that's going to be very tough to overcome. So he, so he's going to have to depend on both Osprey and uh, not Osprey, um, Ibushi and White to lose one match before the end of the A block and Okada win wins out just to be able to get in. And that's, that's a scenario. That's like a set of scenarios that I find it really hard to believe will actually happen. Probably not. I mean, usually these are kind of tied up in a nice bow by the end of the tournament and the it's predictable, but in a, in a logical and satisfying way, um, not just a, haphazard way so yeah it's about the waiting game and I, like we were talking about a little bit on the all japan podcast last night but the the waiting game the patience in the booking like if you're a fan and you invest your time into some of these matches i think like new japan pays it off like they don't insult you for watching their product they they, they pay it off they go hey you remember when you watched that thing well we're bringing it back and we're tying it into this new story and it just kind of is more of a continuum instead of a week to week side or like variety show. Does that makes sense. I don't know. I'm just kind of now I'm just, yeah, we're, we're in the middle of the Broadway right now. So I'm gassing. Um, yeah. So that, that could definitely might, might be the match of the tournament, but, we I got to look at the list, man. We got Ishii's every single Ishii match is. We might have to consider it. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, Ishii has been maybe the perform. If not Shingo, Ishii's been the performer of this entire tournament. And you know what's funny is that I mean, in wrestling circles and like the the guys and girls that are listening out there, we're we're reading a lot more and we're, we're staying up on it. I don't know how much this permeates outside of it, but uh, I completely, no, scratch that. Uh, we'll come back to that. I, I got, I got to refine that thought back to you, Carlos. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, I mean, so now we're kind of looking at the rest of the a block and it's like, first of all, I'm mad that we didn't get the eight-way tie for first that I was really, really hoping for. <laughs> oh, yeah. And it's like literally every match that I thought, okay, that needed to make the eight-way elimination happen, it did not happen. So not super stoked about that, but it's still a four-man race. Okada, Ibushi, Jay White, Will Ospreay, 10 points, five and two records. I mean, I think mathematically, all the other guys except for Yudro are still, I think they're still I'd have to look at, I think you have to look tiebreakers over tiebreakers over tiebreakers. But the problem here is I think all the guys that have six points are technically eliminated in the sense that even if all of them win out, 
Okada and Osprey still have a match. And regardless of what happens, someone's going to get a point, whether it be when a winner gets two points or it's a 30 minute draw, they're going to finish with at least 11 points, which is something that the other six uh, point people can't have because they only got two matches remaining. So it's effectively only a four man race. Osprey, White, Ibushi, Okada, and Okada is still the odd man out because he doesn't have a win over any of the three, but Ibushi and Jay White do and it, we have like a little triangle thing rock paper scissors thing between ibushi white and osprey yeah and that's the vibe that's what i kind of got from right from the beginning of the g1 the first couple of days it sort of looked like those were going to be the guys be, just between the points and between how the matches were going it seemed like it. but now there's okada and before we talk about the b block from today um, the next A block show is that'll be a big uh, wrench in this G one story because there's go- there's gonna be a lot of uh, kind of turning point matches and a lot of big time matches too. I'm looking forward to that rematch between Cobb and Osprey. They had the match at Madison Square Garden, which was fantastic, but both guys are in a totally different place right now, and. I don't know what to expect. Yeah. So super quickly for those who don't know the lineup. So it's uh, Tuesday morning in Shizuoka. So it's Yuyo Omoro versus Gabriel Kidd. Will Ospreay versus Jeff Cobb. Kota Ibushi versus Yujiro Takahashi. Shingo Takagi versus Taichi. Minoru Suzuki versus Jay White. And Kazuchika Okada versus Tomohiro Ishii. Shizuoka. That's where my sister-in-law and my nephew live. Hi. Oh, wow. Hi, Kumi-san. Okay, I'm going to Skype with them later. Okay, um, so, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. We got one day off. I think it'll be like the first official day off that the G1 cast takes since whenever we started doing these in a row last week. Um, But now let's talk about the B block. So before we started, I, I mentioned this, but it's common among all of us that the A Block show from Osaka was arguably the best top to bottom wrestling show of the entire year. The B Block from, oh, where were they last night? Nagoya, yeah? Aichi? It was not. They, it was not the best. It was very not the best. It was very, very not no. the best. <laughs> no, it wasn't bad. Were, but. Yeah, so yesterday's show, well, actually, no, no, not yesterday. I guess technically today, Two Sunday. Yeah, so it was in Aichi, and it opened with Gabriel Kidd versus Yota Suji. Kind of, Gabriel Kidd wins with the butterfly, the Lawrence suplex, but this was not this was not their best match. And there were a couple of good things. There was one one moment where I don't even know what to call it. I don't even know if there's a name for it. But Yota Suji, he he wrapped Gabriel Kidd and. Maybe you can explain it because I sure as hell cannot. But it wrapped him up in this like not in this like super like weird submission lock where Gabriel Kid was kind of like had all of his limbs like twisted like in a pretzel, except for his right leg, which was like extended up. And Kid just couldn't like there was almost like no physically he was like not physically able to escape, or at least it almost looked like 
logistically, you couldn't be able to execute such, such a submission, but it was so weird. I don't know if there's a name for it. Is there a name for it? Did they mention it on commentary? Well, of all the matches, of all the cards that we've seen so far, this one last night is the only match that I've come onto the air without having watched. <laughs> I missed it last night. <laughs> I So I, when I started watch, I didn't get a chance to turn turn on the TV until about like right before the Yoshihashi Zack Sabre match. So I'll have to, I, I'm going to pull it. I, I'm kind of there right now, but um, do you know what time it happened in the match? And maybe while we're talking, I can uh, pull it up. I mean, it was like, it was like halfway. It was like, well, not, maybe around like closer to the middle portion of the match, but it, it was just, God, it was so weird. I just really can't explain it. If you're able to watch okay, it, I, I got it. I, would. I got it synced up right now. So we're getting a, we're doing a live analysis. Um, it's uh, new Japan world. Gabriel kid is uh, chopping Yota Suji. Uh, he's on the ground. I'm going to fast forward a little bit. Okay. Now he's has a, uh, uh, chin lock on Suji. Now he's bringing him lower to the mat. Uh, he has a bully lock. Okay. We're going to fast forward a little, uh, we got this is oh, okay. Oh, okay. I see. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's like a, uh, like a figure four. It's like a knee bar. So yeah, this is a neat, I get this would technically be a knee bar. This is more, I think this is more of like a, a British, like a, a Lancashire, like catch thing. I, I think, I don't know the name of it, but if, uh, if I was at, saw this at jujitsu or like some tournament, I would call it a knee bar because I basically he figure forward Gabriel kids legs and he bent the bottom knee across or kind of levered it above the other knee to kind of bend that gives the illusion that he's bending the knee back, but he's standing over Gabriel kid and his neck is pushed down, postured down. So kid is really forced into pretzel position, but really everyone, I think it would be best if you just watched it for yourself. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't know if there's any possible way to like properly explain it and give an actual visual I feel like if anybody out there has like a like martial arts back, like grappling background, martial arts, what if you have any takes or just know what it's called, tweet us. <laughs> so I, I'm, I, as the match winds down, uh, Gabriel Kidd, he really goes off on Suji and he hits the uh, double arm suplex for the win. No Boston Crab tonight. Yep. Uh, you know, it's. You know, it was just a match. That, that I guess that's it, it, I was not the best match we we seen. You can make a case this was maybe their weakest match between Yuta Suji and and Gabriel Kidd. It was like not really like it lacked a lot of the intensity. Like the fifteen minute draw they had a last week and the match that followed. I don't know. We're just not feeling this match. Yeah, I mean, look, I I feel it's like. 13, 14 days, we're two weeks into a high intensity. Um, I mean, these guys are having some of the best matches of in wrestling right now. So while this, you know, wasn't their best, I don't feel like they um, phoned it in or like, this isn't bad. You know, it's I like, I missed it. And I kind of knew going in, it's like, if it wasn't good, okay. But I knew it's, I know the standard they've proven to me that as a, it just as a fan because of the repetition that every time I see them, that they're good. 
I'm like confident that if I miss it, it's okay. Cause I can go back and enjoy it. Cause I feel like I know it's going to be good. And I, I got that feeling here, but it doesn't mean you have to, it's not must watch, but that's okay because there's a lot of wrestling. So there's like the idea of like how much should a wrestler lay out and like not go for the gold on every show. There's always that idea. Like every like the wrestling is a competition where you guys, uh, people are fighting each other and winning in a, in a, a sports, in a sports game, but it's not, it's like a team production and it, you're telling a story to an audience. So people have function. And I think that had a function clearly. And it helps the, sh- I think it helps the show and it helps. Yeah. It ain't that bad. And that's all I got to say about that. So we're going to see more, but I, th- I feel like the, the final couple shows I'm, I'm looking forward to their final matches. Actually, I, I think they're, this was fine, but you know, I'm not worried. I feel like, they're going to turn it on. They're going to turn it up to 11. So keep an eye on those dudes. And okay. So next, what did you think about uh, Zack Sabre and Yoshihashi? So Zack Sabre won and it was, it was a good match, but what did you think of it? And what did you think of the booking? You know, this was, it was a good match. You know, I, I put it up there with one of Yoshihashi's best matches in the G1, which I mean, I guess it's a great thing or not so great thing, depending on your view of Yoshihashi. But it there was a good, there was a lot of good ground, you know, mat wrestling between Saber and Yoshihashi. It was, you know, Yoshihashi can. If there's one thing I learned about Yoshihashi in this match, is that when he lands strikes, that they like he hits them and lands them with like authority. Like there's some some real like fire in, into some of Yoshihashi's strikes, but. It was, you know, it was, it was good. It's just, you get into such a, like, as you mentioned, we're in two weeks into this, like, high intensity G1 climax. And I don't know if it's fatigue. I, I really don't know. Because, like, I, I watched, actually watched the A and B block shows, like, one after the other uh, late last night. So, like, I, I, so I was not, I was super high on the A block show, but not so high on this B block show. But it was, it was, it was good, but, you know, it was a match that at this point, it really has no stakes. Like, Saber and Yoshihashi aren't going to win their the block, especially Yoshihashi. And, and Saber, I mean, I think he is still mathematically alive. He's, I think he's only two points behind Evil and Naito, but it still feels like they're not going to, I don't think we're going to see Saber win this match. So it doesn't feel as impactful for me because the stakes aren't as high. And this wasn't like a Matt wrestling classic, but you know, it was, it was good. It was, it, it was good. It's just, I, I think I've seen better Zack Saber junior matches and Yoshihashi as, as much as I praise him for his run in this tournament. It's not like he's a top five worker in this company, not by a long shot. No, I think the thing is, here's how I view it. The booking I hated the booking, but I understand the booking. They need Zach to like of course he's probably not gonna win the G1, but um he's he needs to be like a spoiler. He needs to have points enough points to be a spoiler going down the road. So he really probably needed to win this one. And if he beat Yoshihashi, it doesn't really affect anything. But in reality, I think it actually does because uh 
Yoshihashi, his story is that he's had his best run of his career or in a, in a long while. And it would have really, really, since you said there's no stakes, so it would have been great if this was the one win he got over Zach, especially a character like that, pure heel. So, you know, I get it. They need Zach to be a threat in the tournament going forward. So Yoshihashi, again, was the sacrificial booking lamb. But I think they would have gotten more out of this if they just gave Yoshihashi the win. I, to put it politely, when this was finished, I thought he looked like a, a female dog, so to speak. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and you can't, and like, this was the last chance to be a spoiler because his next two matches are Kenta and Toriano. And we know those guys aren't going to win. So like, this is even like, if we think Zack Sabre Jr. isn't going to win the B block, like much, much less so with Toriano and Kenta. I feel like I'm watching, um, like at the NBA in March where everything is more or less decided. And you're watching some garbage games on Thursday, Friday nights because, you know, everyone's checked out and I'm not saying that. I mean, some of those games, those teams are checked out. That's not the case here, but that's the kind of feeling where for the fans, uh, nothing vital or noteworthy will happen. You can kind of tell if you watch it a lot like we do. It's like the big things happen in the big cities. Simply, it's it's not rocket science. But yeah, it's like you're watching like if you go to the NBA point. It's like it's like you're watching a. A Knicks, uh, a New York Knicks, Sacramento Kings game, and and Marge was like, I mean, could be a good game, but it's like there really is no like tangible reason to watch it if you know if you can do other stuff that's better. <laughs> I mean, I, the Knicks are my favorite team. That's the only reason I would watch it. I mean, I know they're horrible, Carlos, but <laughs> I, I, there really is no reason to watch the Knicks, and there hasn't been in a long time. I've seen them lose here to you know. I, I see them lose here in Portland. I, I, every time I see them, they lose. I go to Madison Square Garden. I see them lose. I go to Philly, and I see them lose. All different types of losing. It's it's a sad hey, it's a sad lifestyle. You know what? At least. You know what? At the very least, it, you still got the Knicks brand. And meanwhile, I'm here in Cleveland. The Cavaliers are just the absolute dirt worst. Well, you got a championship, though. You got two. It, it, it feels like a long time ago at this point. That, you got your uh, Kenny versus Okada. And the Knicks still have James Dolan. <laughs> it's horrible. You know, I, I heard a cop say this once. It was, it was reading in the paper. He's, it was such a great, but such a authentically said, all I want to do is just go home, have dinner and watch the Knicks lose like every other New Yorker. <laughs> I think that's the most, yeah. uh, if anyway, I, I grew up in New York. I grew up upstate, but I went downstate to New York and you get it. If you get it, I think. And if I'm wrong, I don't get it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, going back to, to you know to Yoshihashi, I mean, it's like at this point, I mean, if you're the only reason to watch Yoshihashi fan is that you're either a fan of him or you just like watching New Japan, whatever they put out there. Because let's be honest, there's no really there's no reason to watch him anymore in this tournament. Like we New Japan, I think they they did it, they did their job. They 
establish Yoshikashi as a guy who can have good matches against virtually anybody on the roster who's a halfway decent worker. And then, but you know, it's not like this is going to lead to anything big for Yoshikashi because at the end of the day, he's like the lower end of the never open way six man tag champions. So, and, and he only won those titles because of the evil going to bully club story. Right. I, I do think he has earned a lot of sympathy from the crowds and the crowd really did react to him last night more than uh, other shows. I think he's from the area, like Nagoya area. So he might've had a hometown advantage, but yeah, I don't know the plan. I hope he gets back up like his shirts say, mm-hmm. but he hasn't gotten back up. So I, I, maybe that's why they changed his phrase to turn it around because he can't get back up. I don't know. Anyway, good luck, Yoshihashi. I mean, he still has some uh, spoiler-type matches. We, I, I assume he'll get at least one more win. one At least one more win, right? He could serve as a spoiler, right? So, we'll see. The next three matches, we, we had the break, and then we came back, and Sanada and Juice. Sanada and Juice Robinson. This was good. This was good, but... um. I can't think of much more to say than that other than the rounding body press conundrum, but we'll get to that towards the end. But what did you think of this match, Carlos? So it was, yeah, it was good. It was good. It was just, Oh wait, did I skip a match? I think I skipped a match. Yeah. I, I wasn't going to mention, I was going to, oh, sorry. going to ease that and just, <laughs> Oh, whoops. Okay. Well we can talk Sonata and Juice, or we can talk Kenta and Yano. Maybe that was like a Freudian slip. Maybe like, I really didn't like Kenta and Yano. Uh, we, we have to really, I actually, no, I actually loved it. Okay. I've just, I'm very, very, very used to Yano. Like, I, yeah, it's been a long time. Like this, I've watched a lot of new Japan past couple of years, especially. And, um, I don't know. I, it, okay. Let, let's, let's rewind my bad. Let's go. This match was chicanery in abundance. Just, I mean, I, I thought Kenta was actually great in this too. Kenta was really entertaining. Yeah, I think that that's, that's why I love it because Kenta, and I, as I mentioned with the sex Saber junior match, he had, uh, against Toriano, Toriano is great, but his matches are even better when it, when his opponent is more than willing to play ball and play to the comedy. And Kento did this in spades. So, first of all, this match for like the first four or five minutes, there was not a single move, not a single wrestling move was was done or even attempted. It was literally Yano had the Yano had the 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 rolls of tape stuffed away in his body. And then afterwards, Yano told the referee to tell Kenta to do away with the briefcase that he brings to the ring. And Kenta's not willing to oblige. And then Toriano brings out a chair. And then it was just a literal back and forth over them trying to tell the other to throw away their, their item slash weapon. And then after Kenta just kind of fakes him out multiple times, they both just stand on the opposite side of the ring at ringside. Like they went out and then they just started telling each other, you get in, no, you get in. And then it was just like, it was a very like slapsticky type of like three stooges kind of comedy skit. And 
it was just really funny. The thing that really made this for me was the fact that, first of all, you know, Doriano was trying to win the match with rolls of tape as he typically does in this tournament. But then they both fight on the outside and like at the entrance ramp, like kind of like what he was doing at the start of the tournament. And then Toriano, I mean, Kenta, he, he has the briefcase, he hits Toriano, and then the briefcase opens and it's not like a stack of papers or, or a contract or something that you would, that any person that's seen WWE or, you know, with the money in the bank for the last few years, they would expect like, okay, a contract. And then instead of that, we literally saw like two dozen rolls of athletic tape just gonna fly all over the the arena, and it was I just couldn't help but laugh. And Kenta took one of the many many rolls of tape, and he taped Yano's wrist like together with one of the like the columns that was kind of shown that was holding up one of the lights, and Yano couldn't escape, and Kenta returned, and and Kenta's jogging. It was like that weird like comedy like power walk like he was not running he was scooting to, to the rink he, yeah he was like it, it was like jogging but like almost like hard into the ring and yano gets counted out there's nothing to take away like in the last match again yano and kenta are not going to win the match and there's really no stakes to this match but it was but they did something different. It was a little bit of a twist to the Yano formula where Yano's the one that gets the comeuppance because now he now he's the one who gets counted out because of the take, kind of going back to what happened at the very start of the tournament when Sonata was taped to, I think it was Yuya Uemura's ankles and he wasn't able to make his way back to the ring because he was so far away and wasn't able to get the tape out. Trickery does not play. Trickery does not pay. That's what I have to say about that. Coriano. Yeah. I, if you're a fan of comedy wrestling, go watch this match. This like you, I was in stitches. Yeah. I mean, by the end of it, it's really like, um, like not textbook. This is like the perfect kind of structure because they did everything that they possibly could. And Kenta is like actually the perfect foil for like, like we'll say like the straight guy when you do like dual comedy, like he's the perfect reaction guy to Yano. Yano can do anything he wants and his Kenta's reactions are exactly what they need to be. He, he helped make this match really funny. I, so the briefcase thing, okay. Commentary calls it the attache case. So the attache case, there's no contract in it. I, I don't know where he keeps the contract, but it, he had a lot of athletic roles uh, athletic tapes. Wait, wait, well, have we established? Has there has it ever been established that there is a contract in one of these briefcases that Japan has? I, I mean, I I guess I guess that's just our our indoctrination. You know that we've been taught that there is a there is an invisible contract because uh, they're owed a match in the future. So we I guess that's how our brains kind of break it down. We we envision a contract. Yeah, we I just assumed there would be a contract, but. No, not necessarily. Could be anything. But, but then yeah, we go, but then now he gets into the we asked the question now, if there's no like paper contract, does that mean that the briefcase itself is the contract? And if so, well, couldn't you just destroy the briefcase? But first of all, that briefcase is like completely in tatters up to this point. So if you destroy the briefcase, would that mean that like you lose your title shot? 
I have no idea. I mean, I, I feel like if I was working at a company and I'm, I'm let, let's say, let, let's keep it all kayfabe and say I'm working as a wrestler and I have a Dante a, a case and I have a match and they go, oh, all this athletic tape burst out of your attache case. And I go to my boss and how is it my match? And he goes, yeah, what do you keep in your, your briefcase? And I go, ah, just whatever. Sometimes tape. I mean, because of the nature of what will happen next, I'm assuming his boss just went, oh, tape. Okay. And that's it. And that's the protocol in pro wrestling. And the same goes for the Tai Chi using his hammer and same goes for low blows in front of or behind the referee's back doesn't matter. It's that logic that prevails, I think. Yeah. Uh, oh, but we actually didn't even get to mention Kenta using well, both Yano and Kenta using hand sanitizer or whatever That's right, yeah. liquid was in that bottle and they just sprayed each other and they sprayed the poor ref throughout this entire match. Like that was like the middle portion, but like the beginning, like funny, there was almost like a comedy in three acts. One, it was the back and forth over, you know, you get in the ring or you get rid of your weapon. Second act was just the hand sanitizer slash, you know, unidentified liquid. And then the third act was Kenta taping Yano's wrist at the entrance, uh, you know, at the entrance ramp. Yeah, that's a better way of putting it than I, I when I was trying to say, like, it's a textbook way. I, I think what you said, like, it's a three act comedy match. It's something that you can learn a lot from. And it's so clear. It's pretty clear cut what's going on. And it's really enjoyable. The crowd enjoyed it. I mean, yeah, you can learn so much from it. If you're writing about wrestling or you're a wrestler yourself, it's, it's like, yeah, there's a lot from this match. Although I'm just kind of. I think I'm feeling the fatigue. So for me personally, I like it, but I'm I'm ready to uh, take a break from Yano. I know everybody loves him. I like Yano too. You know, I taught kids in Japan quite a bit, and sometimes he he reminds me of a character that would be on like a kids show. I think maybe that's why. So like my like when I like hang with my nephew and stuff's on TV, it's like. A, it's very goofy. So I think I'm just personally burnt out, but please don't let that uh, like uh, hinder your enjoyment of Yano. I, I have a lot of friends that are just waiting for Yano to one day win the G1 Climax. I hope maybe someday. I mean, he is the king of pro wrestling, so you never know. So, okay, next. Okay, now Sonata and Juice. So there's, there's less to talk about here. For better or worse, yeah. but uh, as a wrestling match, it was it was great. I mean, juice the juice is loose. He is, I think he is, he's a new Japan dude, and he's got his own niche. He's got his own like he really can't be replaced now. He's got his own thing. He's got his gestures. He's got his move set that the the crowd are clearly familiar with his move set. You know, they know they know the spots like Tanahashi. They know that all of his high spots, his sling blade and his poses and the five fly flow. People are really familiar with uh, Juice's repertoire too, and he he looks comfortable. And with a guy like Sonata, I think it can be a really smooth easy to watch match and top level too. It also, it also helps a lot that Juju Robinson has a kick-ass theme song. Oh, you like the theme song? I got, how, 
I, oh, yeah, I, yeah. It's funny. I, I really didn't think about it like pre-G1, but the more I listen to it every time we watch one of these shows, I'm thinking like, man, I just love Juice's song. It's like, I don't know why. I just, I just start liking it more and more every time I listen to it. it. It's pretty, uh, uh, what's the word? Uh, uh, I don't want to say uplift. It's not uplifting, but it puts you in a you know, good mood. Not good mood. I feel yeah, yeah, yeah. it does. But yeah, it's a good it's a good entrance song. It's exactly what an entrance song should do. But uh, it, it's not like um, it gets you pumped and pissed way. It's, it gets you pumped in a all right way, like a party time. It's like a party song, and that's yeah. his character too. He's like the party guy, but he's cool. He's the cool party guy. Sonata, I don't know. He's just um, futuristic, handsome dude, and he was great in this too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Loved, I love the count. I love the the back and forth and the counters left and right between these two guys. It was like almost like the last five minutes of the match. It was almost nothing but exclusively just Juice and Sonata reversing Pulp Friction with the Skull End and the Dragon Sleeper, like left and right, left and right. That was just really, really damn good. And this, you know, if this was another match where the stakes. You know, they are what they are, but it's not like any of us are expecting uh, either guy to win the B block. Maybe Sonata. And we'll, we'll get into that like at the end of the show where we're dissecting the B block standings, but because Sonata still technically has a outsider's chance of winning the B block, though it's still very, very low. But it was a good match. I think that this was, I think the clash of the two guys is just constantly you know countering their their moves and their and their submissions and their finishers that was a really really good set piece it just wasn't you know a phenomenal match it was good it was really really good but it it just one of those matches where you kind of find yourself like okay you know it's a match but you know, there's no real stakes and neither of these guys are kind of going for like a big G1 story arc. Like in the same, like much of the same with like Jay White and Evil are with, you know, them trying to prove, you know, they're the top dog at Bullet Club and winning the G1 or Okada with the money clip or with Ubushi trying to become God. It just, you know, it was just a, a nice almost like exhibition-y type of match. Yeah, and we're, I think we're just also spoiled with great matches, too. I mean, we had, essentially, we had, like, filet mignon last night. So, like, no, I don't think anybody or not many people could... Oh, I mean, okay, I think a lot of wrestlers could probably match it, but they don't need to. And this didn't need to be anything more than what it was. It was good... Um, Sonata is consistent. That's one of the things he does best. I think he works. I might, I'm not sure exactly, but I'm coming to think he, he works well with foreign wrestlers and working like the kind of American style Well, not American style, working with guys who have that style. He's really good at adapting to other styles, but uh, his style itself is kind of, you know, kind of plain, I suppose. But um, he, I, I have to appreciate this. I, I was looking at a picture of 
Sonata often does a spot where he does two leapfrogs and a drop kick, and it's always perfect. But, you know, Juice is quite tall. And I saw him in person. He's, he's a tall dude. Sonata's vertical leap has to be like 44 inches at least. He's his uh, his jumping, his athletic ability is really we. I want to just at least mention it because I can't do that. I'll never be able to do that. I don't know if some basketball players could do that. Talking about jumping. So, yeah, big ups to Sonata. Juice doing great. He's fun to watch. Um, And I think, yeah, this did a lot for him. He's establishing himself. He's he's a part of the New Japan going forward. It, you, you feel it. He, he has his own flavor, but he doesn't feel like uh, he's just there for a tour. He's there. And I, I don't know. I heard, from what I heard, he has a pretty sweet deal in New Japan. From I don't know if it's true, but um, from what I'm told, reliable source told me, uh, he gets to live at the Tokyo Dome Hotel. That's his place. Because Tokyo Dome, New Japan, they have a deal. So instead of just getting a house, you can just stay in Tokyo Dome Hotel right next to Tokyo Dome. Jeez, man. I, what what I would do just to get that kind of deal, uh, if that's true. I mean, it's like you hear that and you go, no shit, he's going to stay in Japan. Like, who wouldn't? Um, it, Tokyo Dome Hotel is really nice, too. It's really expensive. It's No other wrestling companies have this capacity, not even close in Japan right now. Right. That's cool. So and you can see like when people are set up and they're comfortable and they're able to train and their heads are right, you can see when it comes out in the ring. Like it seems like juice is like, you know, firing on all cylinders. I'm using a lot of cliches today. I feel like I think I'm out of ideas. But um, yeah, he's doing every he's checking all the boxes. That's a cliche too. shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, good on juice. I'm just gonna shut up now. But anytime he does the gesture, the juice gesture, I just think of Naito because mm-hmm. Naito, I think, enjoys that um, more than juice these days. Okay, enough of that. We're gonna move on to Goto and Tanahashi, who looked like uh, Shirley Temple last night with those curls, those beautiful curls. Uh, yeah, I mean, Tanahashi's hair can do no wrong. It's wonderful, and it, it's, a, I mean. <laughs> this is cheesy, but this could be maybe this could be something for someone out there to write up Tanahashi's hair in the G1. I mean, those could have their own stats. How many times did he have a perm? How many times did he braid half of his head into cornrows? Three, four? Was it more than last year? I don't know. Chris Samza. Chris Samson, get on Chris, it. Yeah, same. Yeah. Chris Samza will hit you up. If you have time, this is not high priority, though. <laughs> uh, so, so this was yeah, a little bit high priority. Yeah, I, I, I guess right now, but we have about a week. But um, so this match, I feel like I'm going to talk about it like I talk about the Young Lions matches. It's like it was good. It it was above average, but not great. Uh, Goto picked up the win. But I I don't feel moved or anything because I feel it's kind of futile because I feel at this point we both know that neither is going further in the tournament. But what's your take on the semi-main? This was... It was good. There's a part of me that, first of all, a little bit surprised to go to one. A little bit surprised. Yeah, me too. Um, there, there was some great, great 
strikes and a lot of great back and forth. The finish to this match, I thought was the wrong finish. So go to one with the GTR. I get it. That's fine. That's finisher. But like two, three minutes before that, Goto hit like a super Ushiguroshi, like from the top rope and Tanahashi, bless Tanahashi, because holy hell, he could not have sold that Ushiguroshi better. Like that was, and it looked super painful. And Goto was even like selling his knee from having to, you know, do that kind of move from the top rope. I thought that should have been the finish to this match. I guess that's maybe my one gripe with it. The fact that that wasn't the finish and it just goes into a GTR. I'm just like, oh, all right. And like, when you, when you compare it to a Super Ushiguroshi, GTR kind of like, it's whatever. It's like, like it's it's not, like it wasn't even the most devastating move in this match. Yeah. But it was a good match. Oh, yeah. I was just going to say, I, I think that's, how do you, yeah, this you see something like a super Ushiguroshi and you think, how can that real? how can we go beyond that? I feel like I see that more and more in like NXT where people are doing cra- this guy, Damien Priest, he does awesome wild stuff off the top rope and he's really tall and it looks awesome, but it's like maybe, you know, fourth, fourth move in the match. Like, wouldn't that kill somebody? Like I feel like the the ideas about the approach are just changing, or sometimes different, or sometimes you're just in the moment and you just want to try to get that that main GTR over. And sometimes, like they have the plan, they go, uh, "We're going to do everything," and then the finish is this. Maybe they didn't realize that the Super Ushigurushi would look so wild. I, I, in theory, it just sounds crazy, but. I don't know. It was good. There was nothing really wrong with this. This was great pro wrestling. But again, I, I've heard something like Goto might actually be injured. We keep hearing, yeah, we keep hearing that. But like, I guess that may, part of it, I guess, based on how quick the Zack Sabre Jr. and the Toriano matches were. But, you know, since then, he's been having some, you know, some decently long matches. Hmm. Yeah. So I don't know. Well, I guess we'll see you. I'm interested to see what happens after um, the G1. I think he's somebody who could benefit from coming to New Japan, USA, or Yoshihashi. Oh, uh, oh, absolutely. I think the the one we'll, we'll get to that in a bit, but um, I think New Japan, USA would be a great place to kind of send people on excursion without having to um, sign them away to another company. So, whatever. We'll see what happens. We'll see what happens with Goto. Uh, yeah, he won that match. He was selling his knee at the end. We'll see if that plays a part into his story going forward. And uh, final match. <coughs> Excuse me. It was a great match. But um, did you think it was uh, much different than their other offerings from this year? Better, worse? Uh, I mean, I think it was more or less par for the course for some of the matches that we've seen these two have between, you know, for throughout the the last couple of months, and I've said this a number of times, I really hope Evil d- d- doesn't beat Naito just for the sake of not having another Evil Naito match so soon after the G1. Because as we've seen, you know, whenever a top champion loses in G1, the person who beats them typically gets the title shot soon afterwards. So it's, it, it is what it is. We'll, you know, the series is tied 2-2. 
if I have my math right, but. Yeah, I believe so. Uh, yeah, 2-2. Two, two. You know, e- evil, the, sto- the, the larger story is evil in Jay White. Not that, like, but, the, but there's a part of me that's, that's going to take it. Can we just move on? Like, I'm, I'm at the point now with this with this rivalry, much in the same way I was with Okada and Yujiro Takahashi, like, right before the G1. It's like, I'm I'm good if we don't see these guys wrestle each other in a singles match for another year, 14 months from now. Because the matches, again, and I say this, like, in a relative sense, Evil and Naito, they put on some good matches, but in New Japan, um, like top flight main event, good just isn't enough at times. And there were doing, and there were some damn good, good spots in the match. Early on in the match, Evil land, Evil put Naito's head like in between a chair, and then he hits the chair with another chair, like a baseball type of swing. And it was super brutal. Like that, like that was one of like I legit wince at that because I thought, holy crap, that is has such a brutal spot. Yeah, it's one of those so the things. But the problem is they did oh, excuse me. I, I was just gonna say one of those things where if if you screw it up, you really screw it up, huh? Yeah, and to do it, you know, on that spot on on your champion, like that's that's a little dicey, but I'm glad nothing came from it. But then the issue, the larger issue here is that they did that very early in the match. It was like seven minutes into the match. And then Naito would go on to wrestle for like another 15, almost 20 minutes afterwards. Like it almost kind of minimized, you know, that spot. Like I thought that should have, that should have been a spot that if evil, if he was to go over, I would have done that, that, that chair baseball swing spot right at the very, very end of the match. Like I would do that and then bring Naito into back into the ring and then hit everything is evil. And then that's how evil wins. I think that would be a much more brutal way for evil to win. And it also brings, you know, now you start questioning like what's evil's, yeah, what is Naito's, you know, condition heading into the last couple of matches? Because, the last or the last minute or so that was just brutal. But now it's just, you know, it it feels like Naito just lost a match and just he needs to dust up and dust off and just keep going forward. It's like I don't know. It almost kind of minimized that spot. And as far as the resident match, it was it was all right. It was nothing. It was nothing that really blew me away. Like I. I kind of like the Goto and the Sonata match more, and I certainly enjoyed the Kenta Toriano match a lot more than Evil and Naito. You know, I'm conflicted a little bit on the match. I, I liked it. I, I liked it. I can't say it's much. They offer much more than they've been offering. So it's like if you like these matches, you probably really like this. This, this could you could say maybe one of the best ones they had, but um. In some ways, I felt like it was a redo of the Jingu match, but on a like it was a better setting in some ways, but it was a smaller setting. And Nagoya is always like kind of a, a tepid crowd in general, even when it, even when it's stacked. I remember Tanahashi and Evil had a match uh, there last year, and even Okada's match last year in Nagoya, where he's from, it was 
you know, people were having great reactions, but still it's not, it's just a more, it's just a harder city to get heated up, I guess. But, um, evil doesn't have a flashy style. And I think it really shines through on a card or a weekend of really flashy stuff, not only in pro wrestling, but even in, in the real fight world, there've been some crazy finishes. So there's a lot of flash. There's a lot of Zazz and evil. He's not that with the chair spot. That's a really good point that you brought up Carlos because so I've seen it. I think that's just one of his spots that he likes to do a lot, but that's on him. He, I don't think he should use it as a regular spot because it does have that effect where you feel like, geez, that's brutal. Wouldn't, if this were a real situation, wouldn't he have neck damage? Uh, but it was just, it was like midway spot through, through the, um, through the match. And I didn't react to it like that because I'm so used to it. I'm so used to seeing Naito get dropped on his head and get decked. So I guess that's where my suspension of disbelief comes in. But when you put it like that, like it makes you think he doesn't really need to do that. Maybe, maybe he shouldn't be as, I don't know, as uh, deliberate in the ring, but that's part of the heel style that they want him to have, or he has. So we'll see. But I, I think we need to like him or hate him. He's going to be the guy going forward. I feel like, I feel like they put, he's getting a Roman Reigns style uh, stamp. Uh, that's what it seems to me. I'm just, I, this isn't based on anything. I just feel based on his booking over the past couple of years. I feel like, and with his performances, I think they just have a lot of confidence in him. So, and I think the company would rather have a guy who is, can always, always deliver and get popular slowly rather than a super, super, superstar. Um, that's my take, but I, I think they're investing in evil. So we better get used to them, I, I think. Yeah, I mean, it is what it is. I mean, he's capable of having really good matches, but I don't know. I'm, I said this last time we had, we were having this discussion. I'm still not fully sold on this version of evil as a top five heavyweight contender slash champion. I'm still not there yet. I'm going to save that critique until January 4th this year. I want to see wherever he stands that year or whoever, because I have no idea who he'll face. Cause I guess that'll depend on what happens in this G1 or if he wins. I mean, if he wins the G1, that'll change the trajectory of everything too, though. I don't know if they're going that way, but Hey, I mean, he was a double title holder. That was shocking when he won earlier. So, Hey, who knows? It's been a weird year. I don't, I, I'll expect anything. So, and I want to make one quick mention. I think evil has the best superplex in the business at the moment. I think every time he lands that it's, and I love that it's from the top rope, not from the second rope, always just lands it and make Barry Windham weep. That's cool. Evil. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that was the show. I mean, uh, it, no surprises really. I mean, well, I guess the Ken, Kenta and Toriano match was a surprise. Uh, but otherwise, it's kind of a come down from the Osaka show. So that's what it is. Yeah, this. Yeah, I mean, it is what it is. I mean, not not every show is going to be home run. This wasn't really a bad show, but like compare that to the A block, like eh, this, you know, 
it felt a lot less significant, especially considering that as far as the standings go, almost all of the matches from that B-Block show almost don't matter, except for Evil Naito, because, well, now we're at the home stretch. So it's Naito and Evil at the top of the B-Block with a t- 10 points and 5-2 and two record, but Evil obviously owns the tiebreaker over Naito and head-to-head. And then you got Saber, Goto, and Sonata tied for third at eight points and a four and three record. The interesting part here is the tiebreaker. I feel like Sonata might be the only one that technically has a realistic shot of winning because he has the win over Naito. And if Sonata beats Evil, then he has that head-to-head over Evil. So now it kind of, I guess if we're going through Sonata, Naito, and Evil, I guess the... And assuming New Japan's tiebreaker is just head-to-head. So if that's the case, Naito would need to win out then Evil to lose, or at the very least, not win all of his remaining matches. And Evil, he just needs to win out, and he should theoretically win the B-Block. And Sonata needs to win out and have Evil lose no, not not evil. Naito lose at least once in order to win the B block, which it's possible. And I'm just now thinking, like, man, that Sonata Toriano match might have actually sealed <laughs> Sonata's fate. Right. If you really think of it, Yuya Uemura actually not Toriano. Yuya Uemura sealed Sonata's fate. Hey, maybe that was the plan the whole time, and it is easy to disguise. It's easy to forget after two weeks, and you have all these great matches. I'm I'm forgetting. I was looking at some match listings. I'm like, wait, how did that match go again? And it's a flurry. So it's a good way if you're if they're gonna do it, and that was the plan. And it's a great way to set up something for. Sanada and Yuya Uemura down the road. Or, I'm sorry, uh, Yano. Yeah. So King of Pro Wrestling, baby. <laughs> one more year. He's, he's only got a couple more months. What, nine, ten months left? Yeah, and I also think whatever happens with Evil in the tournament, I think we can see that direction determined by Jay White's direction. I think there's got to be some uh, Bullet Club... Uh, confrontation there's uh, there will be something i feel i I wouldn't doubt that there would be that there's going to be something at world tag league yes i i genuinely think there's going to be something happening at that tournament yeah we're definitely rounding the bend and after the b block show you could tell it's like this is it we're gonna we're gonna do the last couple there might be a couple mm, spoiler type deals but for the most part, for me, if it's if Jay White isn't in uh, the finals, I'm betting on Naito and Ibushi in the Ultimate G1 Finals. I, I think that that'd be a hell of a match. Well, I, I see that happening. I think that's the ultimate uh, the patchwork because because look, they they've had they've had matches in they didn't have a match in Tokyo Dome yet, have they? They had a G, uh, MSG match. Okay, let's start with the. Uh, oh yeah, they did this year on the double. Uh, what was it? Yeah, they were on one of the two Tokyo dem- days, and like Ibushi almost yeah, killed so, his head. Um, I, I have to look back. I think there was like one specific match between that little four man tournament that we didn't get to see just because of the nature 
uh, of everything. But if I remember correctly, actually, no, actually, no, Ibushi did not face Naito. It was Okada Ibushi and Naito J. White on day one, and then Ibushi White on day two, and Naito Okada on day two. Okay. That was the only match that didn't happen between those four. Huh. Well, I think with the, the the patchwork theory that I'm that I'm thinking is I was thinking about their past matches Ibushi and Naito because look at the venues that they were at they had the MSG match they had Tokyo match maybe they have a G1 climax match and maybe they pay it off with a Wrestle Kingdom match and this Naito story has been going on for a long time um, I don't think the Jingu Stadium show had the payoff that they've been looking for. I mean, he won the titles and everything, but I mean, you could only do so much. So uh, I, I could see that it feels right. That feels like new, what new Japan wants to do based on look, Naito has been not unstoppable, but I mean, he's almost, I think he's, is he flawless or maybe oh no, two losses so far? One loss. Is it just to evil? Uh, no, no, you, uh, Naito lost to Sonata. Sonata, yeah, that's right, that's right, that's right. See, and that's another way that they can go, too. There's the LIJ issue. So it seems like their bases are covered, and there's something set in stone. So I, I think that makes it a little more exciting. There's sometimes when you watch wrestling, you watch because you have no idea what's going to happen, and sometimes you watch wrestling because you have a really good idea what might happen but you're not sure. So you have to watch. I prefer the latter. I, I like products like that. And I think new Japan, all Japan, those like they deliver in that way. So, so evil. Yeah. He, evil took the win. Emphatic STO. Everything is evil. Puts Naito away. We'll see what happens. But uh, do you have any, Oh, so is there anything else we need to break down from the, uh, from the points in the B block, but, I'm trying to. I mean, not not really, but I do have the match uh, listing for their next B block show, yes. which is Wednesday in Kanagawa at the Yokohama Budokan. So it's Yota Suji, Yuya Uemura, Yoshihashi versus Kenta, Juice Robinson versus Zack Sabre Jr., Toriyama versus Tetsuya Naito, Hiroki Goto versus Evil, and Hiroshi Tanahashi versus Sanada, which I think is going to lend to a better show. Just based on the fact that the last three matches, they were, there will be stakes involved because Naito, Evo, and Sonata, they all have a realistic shot at winning the B block. When I hear the and when I hear the lineup of the show, I'm trying to think of like what will matter the most on it, and it seems like you know, I don't know if we're going to see the winner of the G1 on the show. I have no idea, but. I don't think so. it's more of I a spoiler show. Down to the wire. Yeah, I feel like that we might just see this is more of a points show where the winners and losers will affect the finals. So it's more more about that than the actual outcomes of the matches. So, um, yeah, ultimately, I feel like I'm we're just waiting in the wings for the big shows because I have a feeling that the three sumo two sumo hall shows they're going to be off the charts. It'll be fun. Be exciting. We'll have Fumi Saito with us. That'll be cool. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. But before we wrap today, unless there's anything you want to, is there anything else you want to talk about for the both weekend matches or weekend cards uh, before we start talking about New Japan Strong? Um, 
man, I, I'm just trying to think. And we really covered a lot. Mm. Like we've got, we've, we're now like over an hour and a half on this show already. Yeah. This is uh, like we said, this is no time limit stipulation. This is Broadway. Uh, we're going for the gold well, because what, Imagine if we had actually put in the AJPW stuff into this. I think that was the original plan. Uh, this would have been like a near three-hour show. Well, uh, the original plan was it was going to be staggered uh, the other way. It was going to be All Japan and the A Block recap and then a B Block re- recap today. But sometimes we're f- we're uh, kind of a part of a segment on the main fight game show. So sometimes the the schedule changes, but... I mean, Carlos and I are always here, like doing it a couple like, in the afternoon after or pretty directly after. So they'll be up. I think if you just constantly refresh the feed, we've been busy. I think there's been a podcast in the flight game feed every day this week. So don't feel overwhelmed. Don't feel pr- it's just there. Like what we're talking about is there for when you need to go back to it and kind of use it as a reference to because this is where our heads were at uh, in the moment. So I think that's the best kind of um, source to use when you're digging up information and checking it out. So, yeah. Okay. So then let's go before we finish, let's go to the new Japan strong episode on Friday. I wrote about it on the observer website, figure four online. Um, So I want to talk about the lion's break final first, even though it was in the middle of the show. So, I, I thought that was a big mistake. I Same. thought that should have been the main event. Yeah, I, I think they were worried they didn't want to because they wanted to have this. They want Jay White to come off like a star because the main event was the eight or ten man tag with the uh, Bullet Club and twelve man actually. Oh, was it twelve? Oh my gosh! Yeah, it was a lot of so there, it was. Yeah, it was. It was Finley, ACH, Fredericks, TJP, Jeff Cobb, and Rocky Romero against every Bullet Club member that was in the U.S. at the time. Yeah, and, and a couple of those guys, and Cobb is in G1, so they, they want to shine those guys up, and it seems like they're going to push Dave Finley uh, with Kenta going forward. So I, I get the reasoning, but I still agree with you. I think no one was uh, tuning in for that this week. It, they can watch Jay White and Kenta and Jeff Cobb on G1. So I really think, yeah, you're right. I think they should have put that at the end because and the quality of the match too. It was great. That's a main event match. They'll put it right at the end, but yeah. And, and it would have elevated and it would have made the winner look like an actual star. Yeah. But I guess they have other plans. Uh, that's always the uh, situation when I'm trying to make sense of some new Japan booking. It's, I, I know that there is a plan in place I don't know if I, and it's hard to to give a definitive answer because I don't know exactly where you're going. It's really seasonal. You got to, like, by the time next week, we'll have a better idea. Uh, otherwise, we're just uh, spitballing here with you guys. But yeah, I agree. So about the match itself, what did you think about Connors and uh, Danny Limelight? So Clark Connors won. Clark Connors is the first ever Lions, Lions Break Crown tournament winner. Congratulations, Clark. Yeah, this was arguably the best singles match in this entire tournament i would it, it's hard to say because like the new japan cup usa matches they were good but they were not like blow away good like the, even the finals was it was all right but this one this felt like a real tournament final like in the same way that we were talking about the ajpw final like the tournament matches there were some good matches you know some take it or leave it but but the finals felt like a real like true main event caliber match and i think that's what we saw here Connors and Danny Limelight are 
great, great guys. It's, you know, they're part of it that's kind of like wondering if they would actually pull the trigger and give Danny Limelight the win. But Connor is the guy that's actually signed to New Japan. But both of these guys look really good. It was, I would say, go out of your way to watch this match. And I would then, and, you know, it technically is involving young lions or at least one of them. So you have to end it on a Boston crab. Of course. Which was, you know, after we seen almost a dozen matches <laughs> end in a Boston crab. It's effective. It felt kind of anti it's effective, but when, when you're when you've watched it as many times as we have, it's, it's at this point it's kinda like anticlimactic. Yeah, it's like watching five guillotine chokes in a row on an MMA show. Which, which would actually be insane, but that's a bad example then. So strike that. <laughs> okay. Anyway, back, back to what you were saying. Um, yeah. I, some people have said that uh, Connors and Danny Limelight was your favorite match of the entire, of this entire program that they started airing earlier this summer. I don't know if I would go that far, but it's probably up there. It could be, I'd have to look at all the matches, but it, yeah. Would you say that? Would you go that far? I'd have to look back, but I wouldn't doubt it. I wouldn't doubt like if I were to watch every single match again, I wouldn't doubt that it's well, this is going to be the best singles match. It, it's that good. Yeah, they're very talented. Uh, check them out. I, but I mean, check out any of these lines break crown matches. I think you can even get like bundles on fight. You can if you don't have New Japan World, you can just like, buy it. Like, I forget the price, but it's out there. It's worth checking out if you want a, a good solid short. Not too involved, but in really involved in high quality a type of wrestling show. Yeah. Yeah. And and there was it was a good match. Like but the other two matches on the show, which um so real quick, Mr. Misterioso, Blake Christian and Logan Regal beat Adrian Quiz, Barrett Brown, Fred Rosser. Eh, good match. It just not 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 super great. And then the main event of Dave Finley, ACH, Carl Fredericks, TJP, and Jeff Cobb, and Rocky Romero beat. Okay, Kenta, Tamatonga, Jay White, Chase Owens, Tangaloa, and Hikuleo in a 12-man elimination match where where eliminations weren't just pinfalls or submissions. It could be over uh, wrestlers being thrown over the top rope. And I'm kind of like, that's that's a I mean, I guess it's a way to get eliminations in without needing to do 20 finishers in like a five minute span. But I'm just like, this feels like very like 1960s wrestling, like NWA or like, or something, but not in a good way. This is actually the, the, kind of a traditional, uh-huh. this is a traditional uh, New Japan style match. There were some really important matches in the late eighties that were the 10 man elimination matches. So I think it's more like their tradition, but Ultimately, in a 2020 setting, it's basically only useful if you want to get rid of uh, your wrestlers from the match really quickly without having to do too much nonsense. So you can because this is on TV, this is on an hour show. So but uh, sorry for interrupting. Excuse me. Go ahead, Carlos. No, no, it's, it's fine. I'm glad you pointed that out because it didn't immediately come to mind when uh, when you mentioned that. But it was good. It was just there was so much great wrestling that New Japan is putting out. It almost felt like, aside from the Lions Break Crown finals, 
you can, I don't want to say skip it because these guys worked really hard, but like this was not like a must watch episode beyond Damian Limelight versus Clark Connors because that match was really, really good. And that was a match that actually had stakes. Well, I mean, and in this one, it's a nice setup for potential for the, you know, for Kenta having to defend his U.S. heavyweight title briefcase fairly soon because Finley said he wanted a, a shot at that. And, you know, it's getting it's good, but as, you know, we, we kind of talked about this off the air, but it's like these matches are, 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 pre, are pre-taped. So unless they really time this stuff really well, you know, with Kenta just suddenly getting rid of it, but uh, of the briefcase and Dave Finley actually won it in, in a pre-taped match, you can kind of see how that match is going to go. Kenta winning or uh, whether cleanly or for chicanery, Kenta would still be the heavyweight briefcase holder. Attaché case, um, packer slash holder. Oh, I, oh, that, thank you for bringing that up, actually. That reminds me. He had a piece of tape on the briefcase last night that said Tanahashi. He wrote it in... That was actually... I forgot to ask you about yes. that. He, he he actually has had that for, for, for a couple of days, for a couple of shows. Now. Yeah, it's, the, it says Tanahashi and Hiragana, like simple Hiragana, not the kanji of his name. It just says Tanahashi. Um We'll see where that goes. It would be really cool if we somehow got Hiroshi Tanahashi on New Japan USA and it was just him and Kenta. That would, that's what, <coughs> excuse me, that's what I think fans would want to see. They want to see the top talent and they don't want New Japan Strong to be like the cheap show. And it doesn't feel like that at all. And I think that's what they were going for with the big uh, 12-man elimination because it, it made it feel like, well, I know nothing really important is going to happen, at least to the main, main guys, but at least it doesn't feel like a throwaway show, which it could easily turn into. It's not like live events anymore because people are watching, so they're not paying. That has to be good. So it has to, they got to think more closely about it. That said, it's not to say it's bad. It's maybe more, it's like maybe next year if they're doing G1, if they could place a show like this a little further from, you know, the tournament matches, it's like, and it's not just them. It's like any wrestling is going to look different after you watch Takagi and Okada or Ibushi and Suzuki. Like what, how can you watch anything after that? I was so, when I was watching Suzuki and Ibushi after that, I go, how the hell are they going to top that? In that moment, I really said like, like if I was a performer of any kind, I go, how, how do you get better than that? Which I thought was maybe one of the best performances, like, and they delivered nonetheless, but it's that kind of quality. We're, we're talking the upper echelon here. So I don't know yet, but the show, yeah, the first match, it wasn't bad. Fred Rosser, Darren Young from WWE was there. He's him and Mysterioso seemed like they're having like a heavy, they're going to lead to a heavyweight feud. They were the heavyweights on their team. Um, all four other guys, TJP, it was ACH was in the main um, TJP and uh, Adrian Quest. I don't have the. Hey. Uh, for Rosser's team was, Rosser was uh, his teammates were Adrian Quest and Barrett Brown. Oh, Adrian Quest and Barrett Brown versus TJP and um, Adrian Quest and uh, 
uh, Blake Christian, Blake Christian. They were more flyers. Yeah. So, it, you know, I'm having trouble coming up with something more original to say. Like if you've seen the matches before, if you, if you've seen these guys, it's what you're, what you've been getting. If you haven't seen these guys, then I'd say, go check this match out. I guess that's the, the main reason. I want to, I don't want to like say, don't watch wrestling. I always, always watch wrestling if you can, but it, it, there's a lot, so you got to pick and choose. But yeah, if you haven't seen any of this, it's cool because you might be introduced to some new faces. But uh, yeah, and kind of the same goes for the um, elimination match at the end. Um, basically, if we had to do like a thumbnail version of the description, the t- like the two main points I got out of this midway through it, I felt Hikuleo is going to be like one of the the guys of this brand. He he feels like a like a deal, like a big deal each week. Like the focus seems like it's on him and he's improved a lot. So he had a, you know, strong showing in this. And at the end of it, we saw Dave Finley pin Kenta and call him out afterwards. So Dave Finley, new and improved Dave Finley is pushing forward. Looks like he's going to be a big part of it. Did you like this match? Yeah, it was, it was good. I was still a little perplexed over the, uh, the, throwing over the top rope being counted as elimination. But other than that, it was, it was good. It was just a lot of, it was weird. It was like, you don't often get to see 12 man eliminations in, in new Japan. I do have to say, I did kind of enjoy Jay White go, uh, coming over to commentary with, with Kevin Kelly, and Alex Kozlov in the middle of the match, which is such a, like a, not a non New Japan thing to do, but I thought it was really, really funny. I liked that because I thought that's what Jay White's character would do because he was eliminated. I think Rocky eliminated him and then he decided to just join them on commentary. It's like the, the, the characters always imposing his will, even if he's losing, he always has to be in front. So yeah, Jay White has got this worked out. He, and and, get, and getting eliminated with Rocky being uh, throwing him over the top rope is a good way to to protect Jay White without him taking a pin. Yeah, and I, we always forget. I always forget because Rocky's been around forever, but he's always great in these. And uh, I remember last year the best of the Super Juniors. He had the Super Run. He was don't don't count him out. They always got the New Japan has some veterans that can. I don't want to call him like veteran is not that old, but new Japan always has guys that can deliver when you forget that they can deliver. So good on that. Yeah. And, and you know what? And even, yeah, as the tag guy, he's really, really good. I mean, in general, Rocky Romero is really good, but I remember when he teamed with um, Ryosuke Taguchi, um, I think it was last year's world tag league. And what I keep forgetting. I, no, I don't think it wasn't, I don't think it was that, but they, they teamed together for a tournament. They looked really, really good. So it was good. Uh, you know, I, I like Rocky Romero. I, I think he's very, very talented. And he is a guy that does very well in sort of, I guess, bridging the, the, the Japanese and the American audience together. Cause he's very good in, he's very charismatic in, in that regard. Yeah. And he's the guy. He's been there forever. He's he's the guy, both backstage and out in front. He's the dude and he knows what he's doing. And it's cool that they have a guy like that. You know, 
he has he has the experience, but he's not like he he doesn't come off as a jaded wrestler. He comes off as somebody who likes his job. So that I, I tell it sounds silly, I guess, but man, that it shines through when when you like where you're working in any situation. The work is good. The work is always better. So yeah, I guess. Rocky created, he cultivated a wonderful environment for, for them. So we'll see. But yeah, that was New Japan Strong. Uh, I don't know where they're going next week. That was the finish of the Lions Break Crown Tournament. It was a little weird to put the finals in the middle, but what are you going to do? Uh, uh, yeah. By the way, I, by the way, I, I, I misspoke I, when I when I was talking about Rocky Romero Rios to get do Taguchi. I was thinking I did when I said World Tag League. I meant best um, Super Junior Tag League. Ah, yes, yes, yes. I don't know if they're even going to do that next year. Are they? They might do something combined, like they're doing. They, I think we technically got that with the uh, with the tournament that we had a not too not too long oh, ago. Right. I think that was technically it, they didn't call it Super Junior mm. Tag League, but. You might as well, considering that this is really that's the roster that you got, and really, like we don't know when the other you know junior heavyweights are going to come to Japan, and a couple of the guys that are in Japan, they're 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 hurt. Like Hiroma Takahashi was not like at a hundred percent when he dropped the title to Taiji Ishimori at Jingu. Well, that's the cool thing about G one season is the if you're assigned to a division or you want to be in one division. You can take time like this to rest. I mean, time off, uh, time off can be bad for some people, but time off can be really good too. I mean, sometimes it, you can finally use that time to just he- either heal up or focus on improving something. And I think uh, that's what I saw when Hiromu came back. He came back and he was running into the guardrail again. I said to myself, "Wow, looks like he healed up." So sometimes this could be good. Maybe he'll come back. And it, I, I like. It. It freshens things up. When he comes back, it feels like a big deal. And we'll have a break from some of the other guys from this uh, G1. Maybe Tanahashi will dip out for a little bit when he comes back. You know, It's all about uh, rotations, uh, unless the crowd wants something specific. If the crowd says, I want The Rock right now, and it's a million people, that's what you do. But again, I digress. We've been go- It'll be interesting what the lineup's going to be for Best of the Super Juniors. Yeah, I, I really don't know who they would get, who they're going to use because that's one of those tournaments where they really um, kind of rely on foreign talent. That's usually where we see a couple luchadors from Mexico. We see like ROH or other like indie uh, uh, wrestlers from outside of Japan. We see indie wrestlers from inside Japan. I think it might be more uh, Japanese based just because of circumstances. I think that's just how it has to be. And maybe this could be a time where we see some uh, working together between New Japan and other smaller companies inside of Japan. I mean, I'd take that. That's cool. Yeah. And it's not the first time they've done stuff like this. Yeah. It's the things that always change are like the ownerships in those companies change and things get out of whack. And then it's not like things are things ever go wrong is that things get dusty and they forget about them and then regimes change and things stay the same and nobody wants to go back in and start over and fix things. I'm getting very vague right now, but, um, Hey, that's, that's Japanese culture. That's the truth. There's a lot of, it's important to be vague actually, but it's sometimes hard to navigate 
but I'm getting very far from our original points. But is there anything else that you want to uh, talk about before we wrap? Because I think, oh, man, we got we're going pushing two and a half hours. We pushed like it's an entire uh, New Japan G1 Climax length show today. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> pretty much. Oh, man. But no, no. I mean, we're now in a wait and see with the next two shows as far as what what that means for the finals. And tune in for when we got Fumi. Yeah, we'll keep you posted on that. We're going to have a show. We're, we're having a there's a day off, I think. Right. There's no show on Monday. So that's a we're going to no show. Uh, yeah. Next show is going to be on Tuesday. The next show is going to be on Wednesday. I just loading up right now the schedule uh, once again. So A Block returns Tuesday, then B Block on Wednesday, then A Block finals on Friday, and then the B Block finals on Saturday, which will culminate into the G, uh, G1 finals on Sunday. Yes. So we'll be back uh, sporadically throughout the week. So keep an eye on the Fight Game Media po- podcast feed because. We might be part of uh, Garrett and John's show, or we might just be on our own. Depends on the day. It's, it just really depends on that and like when we finish the shows. You know, it takes a lot of time to edit, then send it over to Garrett, and he has. It, it, not that it's a lot of work. It just it takes time. I don't know why I'm explaining this because nobody really cares. Uh, <laughs> excuse me. Yeah. So yeah, we're gonna be. I care. Oh, thank, thanks, Carlos. You're a nice guy. Um, so yeah, we're going to be back sporadically. Just check the feed. Um, and by next week, I'll have more details on our final shows and who knows, maybe there'll be some other super surprise special run-ins or maybe not. I don't know. Or maybe so. You got to tune in. You got to tune in. We're might swerve you like Gato. I don't know. I, I can't promise that. That's a big promise. So just tune in. We'll be back soon. Whew, I need a towel for my head because I'm sweating because <laughs> that was a long show. No, thanks, guys. So that is it for this show. I want to thank um, Mike Gilbert for jumping on. I want to thank Justin and Carlos, of course, and then obviously John. Uh, for all of them, uh, I'm Double G. We will see you when we see you. Peace out.